Welcome to the Great Bay's Tennis Podcast, episode 143. I'm Steve Smith. I've been called a lot worse. Very fortunate to be with Ricardo Acioli. He's going to be our guest. Ricardo and I go way back. He was 16 and I was 26. Ricardo, thanks for coming on. Uh, great pleasure to be here. <laughs> Let me uh, just read your bio quickly and we get in this because we, we, go, we go way back to the beginning where we ask you what type of baby food you liked. <laughs> with... Uh, it seems like yesterday it was 42 years ago where I met you. Considered to have one of the most complete and successful careers in Brazilian tennis. In tennis, world-class player, held top 50 ranking, competed against McEnroe, Sampras, Agassi, Becker, Vlander. Those are all number one players. Coached world-class players, Marcel Rios, one, Sabatini, Gabriel Sabatini. Aguga, Gustavo Quirtin, Fernando Melgini. Yeah. Uh, juniors and doubles players, Grand Slam champions, with an ATP officer, ATP tournament executive, owned his own academy where he developed uh, juniors into pros, TV commentator, represented his country in Davis Cup and Olympic, uh, in the Olympics as a player, as a coach. Um, with um, This is amazing. In Davis Cup, one of many successes. It's fun to ask you all these things. Led his team to victory over Spain in Spain when Spain had four top tenors. Carried the Olympic torch for Brazil. He's currently working down the street, Boca Raton. We're speaking to you from Boynton Beach, Boca Raton, Florida, the director of strategic development for the Everett Tennis Academy. 1964. Let's go back to the very beginning. Yeah. I was just teasing about the baby food. I was teasing, too. I asked Ricardo before we started if we want to do this in English, Portuguese, or Spanish. He told me I could pick. <laughs> he saw a guitar downstairs. He told us he, played, he plays a guitar, so he, I said, we, 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 we could go get it. He said, no, thanks. <laughs> but anyway, tell us about uh, the suburb, the village nearby Rio de Janeiro. Set the scene. What was it like, your birthplace, your beginning days in tennis? You know, your parents played, born into a tennis family? Yeah, this is, this is something that I, I kind of joke about because... My mom told me that she played with me on her womb until she was seven months pregnant. So I, I said, yeah, well, you know, I could hear the ball already, <laughs> you know, going back and forth. So, you know, my parents played, she played, uh, my brother played. Uh, my mom is 90 at the moment, and she still plays tennis up to date. So a lot of tennis history in the family. My, my dad has passed away, but he, you know, he played until he was 83, so a lot of years. My brother also played. He didn't play on the tour, but he played very good juniors. Older brother. Older brother, yeah. How many years older? Seven years older. Oh, so you listened to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was actually the reason why I came to the U.S. He, was, he came before me, so. Uh, and then, yeah, then I got into competitive tennis in Brazil, and little by little, just basic. I also played all other sports. I played basketball when I was young. I swam also competitively. So I was doing well in all sports. But tennis at one point said, you know, okay. Did you play it. football? I mean, that's the land of Pele. Yeah, no, everybody plays football in Brazil. Yeah. At a young age. Nowadays, a little bit different. But at my time, if you didn't play f football, you know, what we call football, you know, yeah. soccer, but you were like, an outcast or something like that because everybody was out in the street so you had to play some football and uh yeah it was like it's like a religion back home so um, your, your mother understood the wayne bryan uh 
program. You have to start in the embryonic stage. <laughs> that is true. With yeah. uh, Tell me about Maria Bueno. I would think your mother or your father must have really loved Maria Bueno. Yes, she was an icon in Brazil. But sadly, we heard little about her because, uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I got to know Maria, Maria Esther, and that's what we, we call her Maria Esther, uh, Bueno, obviously. Uh, more when I got on, on, on into the international scene of tennis. Uh, and then the first time I stepped into Wimbledon, I saw how big she was. It was unbelievable. I didn't know how big she was when I was in Brazil. I knew she was like, you know, obviously a huge champion and won everything. But then the first time I walked into Wimbledon and I was meeting with her and I saw what was happening around, I said, Jesus, she's like a legend. Yeah. And... And then I understood the, how big she was. Uh, and then what happened to her, actually, what I felt good was that at the later part of her career, of her life, actually, she was like getting the actual, um, uh, how do you say, the, the actual... Uh, recognition. Uh, recognition, exactly. So they, but, they named, When you had the, uh, the Olympics in Brazil, the stadium was named after her, right? Right, exactly. It was named after her. And uh, then she commentated on TV. She started commentating on TV. She's, yeah, she was loved by everybody. Yeah. Oh, that's one thing with the young listeners. They can always go to YouTube. Um, you know, after her, Yvonne uh, Gulagon came along, and she was so graceful, and they always compared her to Maria Bueno. Right, right, yeah. With, um, what was the older brother like? Was, uh, as far as, was he tough? Was he easygoing? Was he, you know, your brother's keeper? Was he knocking you over the head? Uh, no, he, he was... What was his style? He was a cool guy, you know. He was much older, seven years older, so there was no issue in terms of fighting. You know, I, I couldn't fight with him, so... Actually, one time I hit him with a broom in the head and he fainted because <laughs> <laughs> that was the only way I could stand up to him. But other than that... He was like almost a mentor to me. So yeah. he, he actually coached me for a while when I was young. So he was, you know, by the time I was 12, 13, 14, he would walk on the court and, you know, be drilling with me, be pushing me to do all these things. And uh, he was a guy that kind of propelled me to play competitive tennis. Um, he was a little bit ahead of his time in Brazil, which uh, I think was important for me. So much of my tennis, I have to kind of, give back to him you know he was he was the guy that really gave me a, a a north hey this way is the way to go you can do this you can do that and uh although you know we fought a little bit when you you know i remember one day we're coming back from the club and we're both in the car with my mom and we got into a huge fight just right after practice and i just basically said mom stop the car and i got off the car and I started walking <laughs> And I started calling him names, and my mom was going like, relax, relax, relax. So no, you know. But then, you know, half an hour later, we're hugging each other, and yeah. But it was he was a great influence for me. It was no the power of an older brother. Um, I, I'm from a family was I'm the youngest of six. I always tell people I have three sets of parents and one one easygoing brother. But I had my parents and two sisters, two brothers that were telling me what to do. And um, I think typically the the parents are much nicer than the siblings. You know, they, right, they just yeah. cut to the chase and tell yeah. you what you need to do. Yeah. But no sibling order. And then also when I said, yeah, seven years, I guess the magic number is that if someone, if, if it's four years, you know, there's a chance that the, the younger sibling will listen to the older sibling. 
I have two sons that are 18 months apart, so for Irish twins, so forget it. They don't. <laughs> back in the day, they, they certainly didn't listen to each other. Yeah. With, um, I remember in meeting you, um, it, and for our listeners, I've run into uh, Ricardo. I've certainly followed your career, but to see you at a, a couple of junior terms in ITF or this Battle of Boca, which is a nice service that's offered in Boca Raton, a UTR tournament every weekend, that you told me that you were 16. That really blew me away. But tell me, uh, you, like, you were one of the best juniors in the world at 14, and then how did you go? Tell us about that, Orange Bowl, and that success. And then all of a sudden, I remember telling you, or I remember asking you, how do you, how'd you end up in New Mexico? But, yeah. Tell us about the, yeah. you know, so, getting, getting to the Orange Bowl and all that first. Yeah. So New Mexico is my brother. My brother was an exchange student quite a few years before in a program that was called American Field Service. So he lived for one year in Albuquerque with his family, the Hensleys. Uh, and that's the reason I came to the U.S. later on, because at, at the time when I was 15 in Brazil, I was way ahead of, my, of school. So by the time I was starting my 15 to 16 year, I was going to have my senior year in high school. So it was going to be impossible for me to play tennis like I was doing and, you know, uh, study. So let me go back just a couple of years. Orange Bowl. Yeah. So I get Orange Bowl 14s, and I get to the finals. Funny enough, who did I play in the finals? The guy that I played every day back home. Can wow. you believe it? What's his name? Carlos Chabalgoiti. Carlos yeah. was a legend in terms of young junior tennis. He won the 12s, the 14s, and the 16s in the Orange Bowl. Wow. And we were from the same town. <laughs> So we trained with the same coach. Can you, can you imagine that? We came from Brazil together, and then we played the finals of the Orange Bowl on the 14th. Well, your coach had to be doing something right. Yes, that's right. That's right. So by then, the, next, the following year, I come back to the Orange Bowl, and that's when I said, hey, I can't stay in Brazil. So one year later, after playing the finals in the 14th, I was 15, next December, I come over. And I already had planned a little bit, hey, if I stay here in Brazil, I'm going to probably either have to choose tennis or studies. And I didn't want to stop studying. I, it was a choice of myself. I saw some of my friends were starting to go that path. We were very good. I'm talking about the, the best Brazilian kids. They were very yeah. good. And everybody was taking, oh, we're going to quit. And I said, gee, I don't want to do that. So I said, what's the, what's the option? And my brother said, hey, go to the U.S. You can, you know, go to the U.S. You can play tennis there and you can study and then you, you, you find your way. And that's where I went to Albuquerque with the same family he lived with because they had gone to Brazil and they had met my parents. So we got to be friends. Funny enough, we keep in touch up until today. I consider them my brothers, my American brothers. They live here. Two, two of them live in here in Florida. Uh, one great lives, story lives in North Carolina, and our American mother, 94 years old, she's still alive. Wow, yeah. that's great. And she, she was playing tennis, too. She played tennis, too. So Wow. Tell, let's go back, and we'll go, I want to talk about when I, when I met you, and that, that actually answers a lot of those questions uh, for me. It's a good review, but uh, Daniel Coyle's book, The Talent Code, there's small pockets of places where, you know, whether someone's learning the violin or dance, Tell us a little bit, you know, how do two kids from a suburb of Rio de Janeiro get to the four teams? Well, actually, at, at that time, I was living in Brasilia. Oh, okay. In Brasilia. Oh, that's right. Yeah, in the capital of Brazil. So I was from Rio, 
The city, the city they made in the jungle. Exactly. <laughs> in the middle of Brazil, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was out of nowhere, they just built the city in 1960. So it was a young city. A it, was, of, it wasn't built in the jungle? No, the, Brazil is not in the middle of the jungle. It's the middle of the country, but it's, the not, country. Yeah, it's, not, it's not like, a, it's not like the, the Amazon jungle. It's a little bit further north. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's nowhere, basically. It's nowhere. I must have got that wrong listening to a couple guys that we'll talk about who didn't speak English like you did. So tell us about the coach. Uh, the coach was, he was a guy very obsessed with tennis. He just loved tennis. He played himself, had a very funny serve, like a hook serve. I'm glad he didn't teach me that one. But, you know, he was a guy that was always into, also, I, I think he was a little bit ahead of his time too. He was like, uh, studying a little bit more, he was into you know drilling. He was into things that most people would, didn't do at that time. You know, so it's a bit more tactical. Uh, he actually tried to impose a, a way of playing to me, and my brother was fighting with him all the time. Dog, don't put him on the baseline all the time. He likes to go to the net, so he was always you know let him. Be, he wanted me to be more solid, and I, I never liked that, to be staying all the... My, my friend, Carlos, was always solid, the most solid kid I've ever seen in my life. But I wanted to go to the net and be more diverse. And he had that idea, and my brother was the one that said, no, let him be, let him be like he likes it, you know. So I think that, that influence on my brother was really good in that time. So that coach was a guy that guided us, and he was, interesting enough, you know what he did before we came to the Orange Bowl? We came to Harry Hopman's Academy. So two weeks before the Orange Bowl, we went to train over there for two weeks. And then I was in heaven because I saw all of these guys, everyone practicing. I got to hit with like a few of the pros and I'm going like, Jesus, this is heaven for me. Wow. And I, you know, Mr. Hopman walked on court with me, you know, you know the, with those shoes that were like all uh, they slashed, you know, and you like drill you. You had to go for every ball. I mean, that, you know, Bardmore, I think it was called Bardmore. Right, uh, Bardmore. First, uh, it was at Treasure Island. He was in New York first. The um, It was Treasure Island and the Bardmore, yeah. So, and then uh, that for me is like heaven, you know. So tennis has started gaining on my, my veins. I mean. <laughs> With uh, hearing that, I can remember the first time I saw Mr. Hobbin feed balls. And the shoes that you're referring to is that anybody's taught tennis and they never leave the court, they generally have problems with their feet. But he would cut off like the tops of the shoes because yes. it's problems with his feet, his yes. toes. But I remember it was a group from the Netherlands, and he was feeding balls, and it was kind of, he was going, kind of, "Lovely deer, that's it, lovely deer." <laughs> and he, he was feeding the ball on the top of the baseline, and these girls were touching the net, goldie goldie drill, and they weren't even making contact. The drill, the feeds were so tough, but they just kept sprinting and sprinting because they had so much respect for him. Yes, yes, and I, I was always when I was there, I was always watching. He was always on the golf court. Yeah. So I see, hey, he's coming around our court. Get ready. <laughs> so then, you know, Albuquerque happens, and then I was in the U.S. How long, how long were you in Albuquerque? Six months. I just did one my, my last semester of high school. Did you, then, did you speak English before you came to the States? Zero. Really? Yeah. So. Well, let me set the stage for our listeners. So the boys from Brazil, this is, this is how it really works. It's not that sophisticated in college tennis. So the college coach gets one really good player from a certain country, so in this case, Brazil. And then they call the player into the office and say, hey, you got any friends back home? <laughs> and, and Yeah, I got some friends back home if I could do this. And then the coach wants him to say, are they any good? And then if the, the kid goes, yeah, they're a little better than me. 
You know, and say if that that one, whether it's Sweden or Germany, and there, there has been many cases. I remember, I think it was Auburn one time that had six players from South Africa, Africa or the, yeah. or Minnesota had six players from Sweden. Yeah. And then if, you know, say the kid's three in the lineup and he goes, yeah, my, my friend, he's guys here younger than me, who wins? Well, you know, he, he, he beats me most of the time. They're like, I want that kid. <laughs> so it's not that sophisticated. But the boys from Brazil, um, yeah, I was just curious. And I, I spent, for our listeners, spent a lot of time in, in the same room as Ricardo because you were always stringing rackets. Right. You, tell us about that. Red, red head, right? Yeah, head professional. Gut rack, gut, gut strings. Gut, exactly. And you know, I broke so many you know, strings. Every day. Yeah, exactly. And I was stringing all the time. That's right. When you said that to me, I said, geez, I remember that perfectly. I was always stringing. I got to be so good that I was stringing rackets like, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe, every day. Yeah, every day. So, I mean, basically, you know, and, and stringing gut is delicate. Right. Because, you know, if you mess up a little bit, then it just ruins it. So you had to get, you know, to know how to do it. I mean, it was artwork, you know, artwork to, to be stringing that and. I'll tell you a side story about it. So I come in, I'm, again, you're 16. And why I was shocked because this probably comes from your background, your coach, your brother, your parents. You were the alpha dog. <laughs> you, you were in charge. And you were the leader. And then you were 16. So um, I came in and was given the privilege of revising this general recreation curriculum. So the tennis coach actually... He, he worked for me. He, he taught one class. And it was like, you know, <laughs> I remember one time, you know, he went to talk to the dean, and then dean said, uh, he, he, he was very happy with me because he, he, he really respected Braden and his daughter, Judy. I helped her, and she became an All-American. But what happened is we started this community program, and then his brother was in the area as a club pro, and then we had this dollar clinic. It just created some politics where, um, so I remember he... he went to meet with my advisor, my, my boss, Dean Richard Minner. And that's where I had the line where I was told I was rocking the boat. I go, no, the boat's underwater. <laughs> so the one thing is that um, the college needed to switch some things around is that stringing, my budget and the team budget was just under tennis. And, you know, the players wanted gut. They were buying gut. And I was in a position where I wanted to make phone calls and get people to come <laughs> to the program and then get people jobs. But we eventually had it set up where there was two different budgets. But um, but I was, you know, intellectual curiosity or myself being a dumb jock because I remember just saying, you know, why, why do you speak English so well? And that's where I remember, right. you know, you went to high school in New Mexico. Right. But that was, that's not something that someone who's not going to, you're what, ranked one or two, three in the world in junior tennis. Yes. And then you, that, that's just a not, that, that move would not happen today. No, exactly. I, I think about it and said that wouldn't have happened today at all. You know, it was like there was no information at that time. It was just basically, you know, my parents, my, the experience of my brother, let's go that way. And that was it. And then great advice, really, in so many ways. Yeah. And then once I reached US, then I started, you know, understanding more a little bit. But even, even so, it was, I I was thinking that, you know, imagine that happened, you know, on days like today. I mean, definitely would be, I would have gone to Albuquerque. Yeah. But, you know, in a, in a, on a personal uh, level, it was an important part of my life that I treasured up until today. So it's so, yeah. some people there with me and up until today. So it's, 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 uh, it was unreal. It was unreal. Uh, the Boys from Brazil. There was a movie. Yeah, that's right. that's right. So it was, uh, 
yourself, Renato Figueredo. Right. It was Ricardo Henny. Yes. And Caesar Victor. Yes. That was it from Brazil, right? Yes, exactly. And back in the day, the masses used to be in Latin. And Caesar's middle name was Holy Ghost, Espiritu de Santos. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. People, people had no idea. I, I used to call him the Holy Ghost. Yes. <laughs> but um, when Henny came, all, when they all came, <clears throat> of course, I was going to make the tennis teaching program difficult because we were perceived as easy underwater basket weaving. Uh-huh. You know, anybody can take uh-huh. that program. But I can remember Henny, he basically could just say one word, <clears throat> computer. Computers, computers. <laughs> and the coach is trying to steer him into being in my program. But I remember the coach being upset with me as I took, you know, I didn't put him in the classes I was in charge of. And uh-huh. he, he, he went down the road for computer science. But, but yes. Renato and Caesar, um, they ended up being the program. So I ended up spent a lot of time with um, Renato and then Caesar. But then Ricardo stayed in the summer. And he, then he, he went to the university, it was in the same town. There was Tyler right. Junior College in Tyler, Texas. Yes. University of Texas at Tyler. Yeah, it was yeah. NAI school. So yeah. he was around and he, he you know, helped him with tennis teaching. He worked with me. I uh, worked in our summer camp. He was our movie star. Yeah. <laughs> with, um, but no, I, I remember the coach, he had a resurfacing company. So I had nothing to do with your tennis except for I remember running practice like the matches were over the middle of November and but that's where I I mean you you were the leader yeah yeah you're saying about the resurfacing uh, you know I did some resurfacing hardest job in tennis (laughs) (laughs) I did that a few times and I remember that he told me oh you have to do this and that this and that and one weekend I went to resurface a court I don't know if I was with another one of the guys that was together with me and there was something for us to do in that day, something to go to a lake or something. And I didn't wait for the proper time to do like the second and the third quoting. I just started doing one after the other. <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> a few days later, he said, what did you do? <laughs> this is all right. I'm going, coach, I did everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> he used to lend me the truck that, you know, it was all painted. Up, you know, it was I remember that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, the coach... Um, at Tyler Junior College, we have to understand that junior college tennis was stout. It was strong. It was strong. Yeah. There, there, there used to be thirty-two teams in Florida. Now, for a long time, there was zero. Now they're back up to two men, men's teams. Oh. Um, and the coach, uh, Fred Niffen, the late Fred Niffen, at first he was going to wave the American flag, and he had all Americans. He wasn't going to use foreigners. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, okay, I want to win, so he he went with foreign players. When you were right. there. Who else rounded out the team besides your teammates from Brazil? Well, there were uh, two years. One year, there were a couple of Chilean guys, uh, Dannenberg, yeah. uh, the Dannenberg brothers, and then uh, Lance Watson, which was an American guy who went to UT. Doug Watson, also uh, Doug, Doug, Hall, Doug, Doug Hall. Doug Hall. Yeah, Doug Hall also went to UT, I think, and Scott Nichols. Uh, those wow. were the guys. Well, let me just go through that. First of all, I'm grading papers. I got a little bit smarter as I went along is that we started putting a lot of the testing on video because it took so long to grade papers. We went from having a handful of students to well over 100. And I'm grading papers, and I'm watching basketball, ESPN. It was Texas. (laughs) Now, Lance, it was Doug Hall. Doug Hall and Lance Watson, right? So 
they're very good tennis players. They're on a team that wins nationals. Right. So obviously they're your teammates. Right. But they weren't good enough to play at the University of Texas. Right. You know, we had Steve Denton on, for example. Steve Denton, Kevin Curran, they're right. You right. Know, big, exactly. big time players, yes. Wimbledon yes. finalists, yes. You, you know, Grand Slam titles in doubles. So um, I'm grading papers and I look up and Lance Watson's playing for the University of Texas basketball. I saw, I saw him on TV too. <laughs> so, the, uh, so I get a hold of him and I go, tell me how this happened, is that the coach came in and he was unhappy with everybody and he basically kicked everybody off the team. You know, one of our students who did so well in college tennis, Craig Tiley, he did that with the University of Illinois. He goes, okay. Um, I was just telling a story about the coaches at the University of Arizona that um, his name escapes me right now, but he, he basically did the same thing. Is you know, documented, his, you know, okay, your, your attendance, your attitude, documented all, and it's okay. And uh, Tiley had to go to the intramural department to get players, but that's what they did with Lance Watson. But my, Lance Watson's story I like is they had a banquet and they had famous Bobby Knight come in and speak at the University of Texas banquet. And Watson comes in late and, and Coach Knight just stops his speech and says, hey, kid, <laughs> if you were in my program, you and I would meet tomorrow at 4.45 in the morning. And he goes, he stands up. He's got that uh, Texas yes sir, no sir yes, yes. <laughs> language. And he and like a politician, just, yes, yes. you know, just like this guy's going to be a senator. So he, he goes, sir, first of all, I apologize for being late. There's no excuse. But I would tell you, tomorrow morning, you're going to be there at 445. I'll be there at 430 with bells on. And then, so then they, they started at you know, said for a while, he just forgot a speech. And he's just going one-on-one with this guy. And then he goes, I like this kid. I like this kid. This, this kid could be on my team. But that's how strong junior college tennis was, is right. that they went to Texas and played at the intramural level and back in this and of course this was uh i met you in 81 but like i say the early 80s for sure but throughout the 70s everybody was playing tennis in america yeah you know some baseball player who could really throw the ball they say you know this guy's got a great serve and yeah anybody and everybody was playing but um yeah and then and then the other team was you know renato and and um and ricardo and and cesar and then we had bob wiley and mark wilder Mark Wilder also, mathematician. I think he was, he was, uh, is a professor in, in, in a... You know, I believe he's at Mississippi State and he's in charge of accounting or he's in charge oh, of like oh, yeah. that department. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was, we knew he was brilliant then. He was a table tennis player. Exactly. I played, I was very was good. Big, at, he was big time. No, no, no. I, I, you know, when he, when he arrived, I said, we, you know, sometimes we'd go play some table tennis and I, and I was very good. And we started, uh, let's play. Hey, Mark, get over there. And I'm going like, Jesus, I cannot be. He would toy with me. I mean, he was, he was yeah, like. He's like one of the best in the country. Yeah. Exa- he was another level. I mean, he was. And that's how he played tennis. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how he played tennis. <laughs> no, I, and when I was there, I was 26. And I, I didn't have a speaking part with the team. And having grown up in sports, it's like, wait, this is not my position. I'm not coaching these guys. Although I was coaching the people who took the tennis tech classes, like Figueredo and, uh-huh. and uh, Holy Ghost. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Wilder, he had these strong legs and he could just fight. He wasn't going to hit a volley anytime soon. That's right. So this gentleman saw somebody in Mississippi, a young kid named Holden, who uh, plays really well, has really good technique. And so I ended up having a cell phone conversation, and he, he works at the same university. And he, tells, he starts talking about Mark Wilder's game. And I said, well, tell Mark you talked to me and tell him this is how he plays. <laughs> and this guy's going, how do you know that? 
how do you know that? Because I watched him, you know, we're on the same campus, you know, I just watched him play every day. And he was a very tough out. You know, he was. He, he just, he was going to get every ball back, yeah. in and out of the corners. It was tough to beat him, yeah. With, uh, yeah, the tennis, I think of uh, well, Figueredo. Finals Go ahead. number two flight, Nationals. Mark Wilder against Michael Panforce. Oh, is that right? Yes, number two. And Pernford, for our listeners, I mean, he was in the French Open, not in the final. And he won NCAA next two years, two, two years in a row. Yeah, he won two years at, at Seminole and then two years at Georgia. I remember he played Georgia. Uh, George Bezekny, who was his teammate at Georgia. Yeah. And that, was, that jumped out at me because, I mean, obviously over the years, you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s. And I watched Bezekny play as a 12 and under player. And before we went on air, we started talking about Robbie Seguzo. And, and I used to watch all these kids play and... Then he's in the NCAA finals, and I remember he had that little um, dip on the back end where he would reset it low high, and and then then when I was at Suguza Basket, which is now Everett's, he was there training as a pro, and his back end was the same as it was in the twelves, and I was like, wow, you know, it's amazing how people will. I played I played save. George at Georgia at the Southern Intercollegiate in the semifinals. It was the greatest experience playing against him at with, Georgia. At Georgia with all oh, the wow. rrr, 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 everybody barking. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I mean, that scholarship thing it was unbelievable. So, yeah. No, that's like well, I'd like to talk to you about Davis Cup, but that's that was like a Davis Cup experience for yes. you. Yes, right? mm-hmm. I loved it. With uh, some of the team players. Um, We'll have to talk about Bob Wiley. <laughs> I, I think of uh, a sitcom. I mean, all the years I was there, I was, I was there throughout the 80s, 10, 10 years, basically, 81, 91. And um, if we were to have a TV show based on that, Wiley would be the, the lead character. I bet. But Scott Nichols, he was an amazing player. He was. Like, um, I, I, I was doing a thing in Philadelphia for coaches, and he came to it. He's like 35 years old. It's many years ago now. Wow. I mean, I'm going to be, I'm, hopefully I get there, knock on wood, get to be 70 here in a few years, <laughs> 68 now. But he was a classic player. He was. Just totally the opposite of Mark Wilder. <laughs> for sure. Yes, he was. He was very, uh, very interesting guy to see play. Yeah, he was, he was good. He was Somewhere good. along the line, it must have been one of the other years, because it was two years to be in junior colleges. Uh, f- remember Figueredo came back and he had lost to, he goes, I lost this guy from, you know, I think he was playing flight. Maybe it was, I thought it was flight three. Maybe it was the year before. But he lost to Figueredo, I thought. And Figueredo lost to Pernforce one of the two years. Well. No? No, I don't think so. Mark, Mark played uh, uh, Michael in the finals of the number two flight. Yeah. Did you guys would have played them in a dual match or? Maybe. maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, or maybe in a tour- yeah. like some some tournament. Yeah. With, um, you played one. I played one. Yeah. Well, in the first year, Scott played one. I played two, and then in the second year, I played one, and Mark played two. Mark Wilder played two. With, so. uh, let's talk about uh, Wiley. These guys had a house. <laughs> you and I are talking about that. Our listeners get a vision on this. I called it, the, they called it the tennis house, but in the front of the house was a tree, and all these tennis players, there was, there was a four, maybe then there was eight. I used to have a little pickup truck, and lab would start at eight o'clock, and the program wasn't like that years later, but it was like, okay. I would organize a drill and I would go get those guys and pull them out of bed. And, you know, it was like two miles away from the, the tennis courts. 
But they, every time somebody would wear out a pair of shoes, they would tie it in the tree. Yes. And especially in the wintertime, it looks so cool. <laughs> you know, there's just all these shoes. And it, was, it was interesting. The neighbors never said anything. And yes. It was unbelievable. That house was like the hangout place for everyone. And I guess it continued for so many years. With, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, um, I, I could see that happening where they held the lease. And <laughs> I didn't, you know, of course, I had to uh, stay away because I was the faculty member. But the stories about the pajama uh, parties yeah, yeah. and the toga parties. Yeah, and, I, I won't go into that. But yeah, the pajama parties, the toga parties. And yeah, I have some pictures of those. <laughs> I still have those. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you didn't go. You were stringing, stringing rackets. <laughs> yeah, I was stringing rackets, right? <laughs> With, uh, I have this down in my notes. I used to, uh, we had people come in from all over the world. I mean, the tennis team first, but then the tennis teaching program became very international. And uh, I used to write this on the board. I was going to teach everybody to speak Texan. And uh, it's CM Snakes, and then it's MR Not Stakes, and then it's OSAR. And then it's CMBDIs. And then, <laughs> then this line is the best. L-I-B. <laughs> MR snakes. But I used to um, have some fun with that. Are you still in touch with those guys? Figure, you know, Figure passed away, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Sad. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Yes, I'm in touch with them. I'm in touch with Ricardo. I'm in touch with Cesar. Uh, yeah. Uh, with those, for, with the Brazilian guys all the time. With uh, Bob Ali, yeah, sometimes we, we exchange on Facebook. And Lance Watson, I actually spoke with him a few years ago. Wow. I think he, I think he's a lawyer now. I think he's a lawyer. Yeah, I remember yeah. hearing that. And um, That was a given, though. Yeah, exactly. And, and Doug, we exchanged some time on Facebook, too. And, yeah, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a period of my life that I'll never forget. I was the youngest one, you know. So everybody, but you, but you were the alpha dog. You were, yeah, exactly. you, you were, you were, of course, you know. You're, I would now. I'm listening to you about your older brother. I didn't know seven years. That's a big difference in the impact he had, or just. But you had already played tennis at a pretty high level. I mean, to be one or two in the world in the fourteens, yeah. and yeah. But no, I remember the sound of the ball coming off your racket. You were an all court player. Yeah, I uh, I went to play one of the on on that summer. That I was here, I went to play the U.S. hard courts, the juniors. They allowed me to play that. And who did I draw in the first match, in the first round? Jonathan Cantor, number one yeah. seed, the number one U.S. player. And he beat me 7-5 in the third, or 6-4 in the 7-5 in the third. So, I mean, uh, I remember those. And, and then I said, well, this is the best American guy, and, you know, I'm right there with him. So, and then years later on, I met, you know, him, we met together again on the tour, but uh, it, there was no communication at that time. You know, had I known my level right then, maybe I would have gone to a different place. I don't know how it goes, but um, uh, it, it was it was fate for me to go to. Well, the reason I went to Texas also is that my family, Francis and Douglas Hensley, the ones I live with in in New Mexico, they were from Texas, and they went to UT. So they had some relationship with people around the area, and they felt that, you know, TJC was like with the best junior college in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, since I was such a young kid, they felt I had, a, I had an offer to go to University of New Mexico to stay in Albuquerque, but I didn't want to stay there. I said, I want to go somewhere else. That's smart, yeah. <laughs> so, 
And they said, well, you're so young, you could be 16, everybody's going to be 18 or older. And they said, this is going to be a good fit for you. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> so it was, it was a great fit for me. So with that, you get, you lost some time where you get sick, right? Before you went, you went to South Carolina. Yes. I got hepatitis. You know, I, summertime, I go back to Brazil. I start playing ATP. I get my first ATP points at 17. And the last tournament I'm playing, I qualified in the Challenger. I'm playing in Argentina the next round, and it's in Brasilia. Look, my hometown, my hometown that you know that I was living. I wake up in the morning, I go to pee, and it's like Coca-Cola. It's black. I go, Jesus, there's something wrong. So I go to my parents and say, Hey, I'm peeing, and the color is not you know yellow. It's it's like Coke, Coca-Cola. I go, Oh. You're sick. You have probably hepatitis. And I'm going like, really? But I'm going to play this match. And they couldn't. Oh, no. So I went on and played anyway. I almost won. Lost 6-4 in the third. And then they took me to the doctor right straight away. And the doctor said, go to bed. And I, and I was like off for six months. I couldn't do anything. So I was like completely. That took me off for a while. And so then, during that time, uh, you're back home. And then. You did come back to the States to go to South Carolina? Yes. And then I went to South Carolina. And then in South Carolina, I had another setback. Also, I, you know, South Carolina was great because, um, you know, it was, a, it was a jump from, you know, TJC and then playing at Division One. We were top 20, so there were like 15 in the country. It was a very good team, good, you know, good uh, conference to play. My first semester, I did really, really well which is the fall. Uh, like I said, this, this tournament, the Southern Intercollegiate, which is the biggest tournament in the, in, the, in the fall, in the South, I was in the finals. I beat Pizekny in the semis and beat a, long, a lot of other guys. A lot of guys that were on tour with me were playing that tournament. It was unbelievable. Uh, and then we go to, that semester ends, we go to, I go play in Milwaukee, which was like the, the national indoors, the yeah. first big tournament that was in the, in the, yeah, I was in the semis playing Roberto Saad. Yeah. And I tore a ligament in my knee. I yeah. slipped on the court, fell down, and that took me off the court for 10 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I didn't play tennis for 10 months. So you, <laughs> and look, funny enough, I told Ron, I told coach, said, hey, coach, things go well. At the end of the semester, I'm going to go pro. And then that went away. And then obviously I finished school. And then, uh, and then I went to play pro after it, but in a different... Did you have a medical redshirt during that yes. time? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, and then what happened, in, in a sense, was good for me because I went, did a double major, I changed my major a little bit, uh, kind of grew a little bit more in terms of a lot of things that I wanted to do in terms of my life. And by the time I... I when I finished school, when I graduated South Carolina, I wasn't really certain to play on the tour. I already had a job to... To, to be here in the U.S. working, and I felt like, well, let, but I said, hey, I want to go to Europe. I want to be there for at least two or three months. I want to travel. I've never been to Europe before. I'm going to play some money tournaments so I can stay there and this and that. I already had ATP points because I always played during the summer. Yeah. And then by the time I got to Europe and, and I uh, played some challenges, I qualified, I won a few rounds here and there, and I'm looking, I'm starting meeting all the guys from junior time and 
they were doing well. They were, you know, top 200, top 100. And I'm going like, Jesus, I can play with these guys. And then I said, hey, give me six months. I'll come back in December. And then I never came back. I said, hey, that's it. And then very soon I was in the top 100 in doubles. And then I was getting close to being in the Brazilian Davis Cup team. And then all of a sudden things just started. Going. South Carolina, Ron Smarr, class act. Gentlemen, tell us a little bit about working on, or playing <laughs> for him. Uh, we keep in touch up until today. Unbelievable. Great guy. He, uh, he was the one that recruited me. Um, he had, he, he, he was always positive, you know, he was, that was something that he always gave it to me that I felt that uh, there was no, no bad feelings with him. You know, always, every, every time something happened, he was always there. He obviously, he was key to me in terms of when I got injured, he took care of me like, you know, his own son and uh, all the support from the school. Um, and like I said, is is the, the team was well managed. I think that also that's that's something the key part of being on a, on a team. You know, having the leadership. You know, to yeah, he he has a he had a long long career as a college coach. From there, he went to Rice, but I believe before that he was at Colorado. He actually started at junior college. Right. I don't know how many how many wins he had, but. Yeah, I sent him one of you know. I sent him a, a, an All American from my academy. I sent him to Rice. So uh, a few years later, I say, hey, Coach got got a great kid here. He's bright. He wants to go pro. He's not ready. I tell the family, hey, don't you know? And and he can get into Rice. He's gonna be a great kid. And he was like, you know, uh, I think he got to like eight. Uh, but it was an All American for Rice. And uh, I, I coached a Japanese player, Take Marita, who, Marito, who played for. Coach Smar, they were top ten in the country at Rice. Yeah. Uh, then after South Carolina, uh, the coach who came in, he had coached uh, Robbie Zuzo and Ken Flack. My senior year. Oh, is he so? My senior year, uh, Kent Demars. Kent Demars. Yes. So my senior year, Kent Demars came in, and um, that's why you know, uh, and he brought in a couple guys from Edwardsville. From, the NAIA uh, school, yeah, right? Right, exactly. So a couple guys that came in. One of them was my, my doubles partner, Dave Delcini from New Jersey. The, the uh, word, you know, through the industry that, uh, you know, obviously later on, Seguzo and Flack did so well in world-class tennis uh, that, that he really made, had a major influence on doubles. Yes. Yeah, he was, he had a different approach, uh, and I liked it. I was just him with him, I think yeah, it was one year. Was a senior, I, don't, yeah, no, I, I thought maybe a semester, but it was no. It was the whole full senior year. He was very structured in terms of practice. So he had patterns to do, uh, you know, a, a bit more uh, formal in terms of, hey, let's do this, return, you know, cross court, you know, do this. Uh, he, he, he had some patterns into the coaching that helped me quite a bit too, you know, kind of made my... I was, I was a very free player, you know. I, I like to do everything, so yeah. He kind of put me into a a, a a better frame, let's say so, and and that helped. That helped. Yeah. Oh, certainly it can go the other way, but I, I do think, within reason, it's 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 good to be uh, influenced by many coaches. Yeah. Like Roger Federer said, it had the right coaches at the right time. Yes, that's right. With. Uh, and what about you know the transition to the tour? I mean, that's not that's not something that's easily done. It's it's a, meaning it's a, a war of financial attrition. I mean, to make it as a touring pro to stay out there. Tell us a little bit about that. 
the transition. The transition is pressure. If you don't have money from family, or if you didn't save it, I mean, I don't think someone you know, goes to a plan of <laughs> making a savings account to go play pro some certain years later. So it's yeah. got to be from the family or some, some type of sponsorship or support. It's pressure all the time. So in, uh, during our time, my time, there was no sponsorship. There was no, although I did have a little bit of help from Brazil once I got to be known a little bit. Uh, back, you know, from disappearing from juniors and then appearing again because, you know, it comes right. to the U.S., I disappeared, basically. Yeah. So, um, but I, my parents were able to help me a little bit. And fortunately, I was able to win from the bat, you know, just winning. And by my wins, I was able to keep on playing, keep on playing. And what helped me was that I had very good success in doubles. Very quickly in the first year, I was already in the top 100. So by then, I, the doubles was, was keeping me afloat all the time. I was starting to play in the major events. You know, I could play into the Grand Slams. And all of a sudden, you, it's a different world that, you know, having to stay uh, on playing. I remember the first summer that I played, I even got a, a clipping from a friend a couple of days ago from a tournament in Midlothian and Virginia, which is right by Richmond. And I played Johnny Levine in the finals. And it was a satellite at that time. So it wasn't futures. You know, you had to play. Right, right, right. You had to play five weeks to get the points on the ATP. So everybody, you know, played those five tournaments, else you couldn't do it. So well, it was four, and then the last one was called the Masters. The Masters, right? exactly. So, so you remember that this tournament was the first week I played in Augusta. I lost to Gary Muller. Lefty from South Africa was very good. So, the, and they, they were, these tournaments were so tough. The second week, I, I beat, I, I beat uh, Peter Duhan, who had beaten Becker. 87, in, I think, in Wimbledon. In Wimbledon, exactly. So, and I get to the finals against Johnny Levine. So I lose to Johnny Levine in the finals. Okay. Johnny Levine was from Arizona. Uh, so next week, we go to Winston-Salem. <laughs> Go to the finals against who? Johnny Levine again. So I lose to Johnny Levine again. Jesus. So last fourth fourth week, Midlothian, Johnny Levine again in the finals. I finally beat him. So then we go into the Masters, which was, was in Philadelphia. And uh, and then basically I, I, he had first place. I had second place. We couldn't change it. So it didn't matter. I got to the semis. And he didn't even, he like in the second round, he tanked because he didn't make much sense. But then, you know, you start making a little bit of money. Then my ranking just went up. And then all of a sudden you start playing more here and there. That summer I finished, I go to U.S. Open, I qualified. Uh, and I played who in the first round? Cassio Mota. <laughs> a Brazilian guy, can you believe it? Uh, very funny. So we played on what we call the hamburger court. I don't know if you remember how it used, used to be the U.S. Open, you know, that big stadium. And beneath the, the major court, the... The grandstand? The, no, no, the other side of the grandstand. The, the, the grandstand was on the left, and then okay, okay. The, the major court was yeah. like, I don't know if it was, was Louis Armstrong, I guess was the name. It was, that not, was, it was, it was an Ash. Yeah. It wasn't Arthur Ash. Right, it was right. Louis Armstrong. So I used to call it the hamburger court because there was like the hamburger stand right there. Yeah. And there were like, like a couple of courts in the back right there, and all the smoke from the hamburgers were there. And we played that court. And... <laughs> Jeez, we played five sets and I lost seven, six, three and a fifth, something like that. I was really bummed because 
had I won, I would have played Becker the next day or two days later on center court. So it would have been, you know, a great experience. I love that. I love playing on center court and all. You yeah. Know. But anyway, so that was my, you know, first year, first year and a half on tour. And then from then on, things, you know, I was already making Davis Cup team. I was top 100 in doubles. Uh, and then once you start making a little bit, you know, in Brazil, making Davis Cup, you start making a little bit more money because you get a little bit of sponsorship here and there. And that helps. So that transition for me was quick. Yeah. If it takes long, it's, it's tough. Well, it's certainly the, the emphasis, emphasis on doubles had to help you out from college. Yeah, exactly. I, I always played well doubles. So uh, plus, you like you like to go forward, you're all court player. Yeah, exactly. It was my my style. It, and were you uh, had, were you a specialist as far as the deuce court, ad court? Or you could play either one. Didn't matter. I played mainly on 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 ad court, but I could play both. It depends on it depends a little bit on my partner. Yeah. If I felt like my partner was better on the other side, I'll, I'll just make the change. I needed like maybe a match or two. But I could play on both. It just just a little bit of adjustment on returning. That's the only thing I had a little to to do. But I could play both. What was your, how was your uh, luck with uh, injuries following that? You know, you had the problems earlier with hepatitis and with your knee. Yeah, I I did have when I had an injury. It was like major. I never had injuries injuries, but I, when it happened, it was like it like you know you broke something. So it happened just a little bit after that when I started going again. You know. Year and a half, I went to, to a tournament in Brazil. It was just a money tournament that I was just playing for the money within the like the best sixteen Brazilian guys, and I was leaving Brazil to go for like three or four weeks or three or four months outside because during that time we travel. You know, we travel three week three months. You know, we don't travel like three weeks, so we had to leave and just basically be out away. Um, and I was playing, and I felt on a court, and I tried to hold myself up, and I dislocated my shoulder when I hit the, the ground. And that was, you know, couldn't move my shoulder. For like, well, I was on a, on a, what do you call a Sling. Sling for like a month and a half without having to move. So you can imagine how tough it was the, to The recover. atrophy, yeah, the muscles. Yeah, so. And then, and then you recover, and then you go on, and then, you know, keep on going. And... And then, you know... Uh, Traveled all over the world, played all the majors. Yeah. What's your favorite city? I well, mean, tennis was a luxury to you. You got to yes, see the world, right? Yes. Well, there are, you know, <laughs> there are so many nice cities and so many good things to do all over. I like Paris a lot. Uh, Paris is, a, you know, especially during, you know, that time of the French, you know, it, it's nice because of the, the climate, you know, the the... You're talking about the, Paris, France, not Paris, Texas, right? <laughs> That's right. I've been to both. <laughs> I know. They actually, they actually had a very good junior college yeah, program. They did. They did. They were good. They you were know, good. There, there were 32 teams in Florida, but there was good teams. They were good. They were the, good. the California teams, I mean, it was, a, I think, four-year period where I ran the junior college nationals to digress. At, uh, but the California schools. Brad school, Gilbert played, played in... Uh, Foothills. Foothills, yeah. But they, they didn't play in the nationals. Yeah, so exactly. They, they yeah. just played within California. Yeah. Favorite tournament? Favorite tournament as a kid. I mean, I would just think to me to play the majors. I mean, yeah. Well, I I would say either Wimbledon or U.S. Open. Yeah, those are those are the two uh, favorites for me. Yeah, Wimbledon. Wimbledon is so so different. You know, it's it's just different. I mean, everything there. 
from the way you walk in, you go to the locker room and, and you know, you, the first time I walk in, you know, the guy has said, he's, you know, you, you have your name, they put you over there, you, you know, you have locker room one, two, and now there's like four locker rooms. Yeah. And, and you go back and forth and you see the same guys and these guys are like old guys, you know, that they, they take care of the locker room all the time. So that kind of atmosphere gets to you. It's like, Jesus, this is different, you know. And, you know, tea, you know, you have a ticket, you have a, yeah, they give you meal tickets and then tea for five o'clock, you can go have tea. You know? That's so cool, you know, strawberry. Like, so different, you know. <laughs> well, I think about being on the Tyler Junior College courts. Now, years later, they have a brand new facility and it's so much nicer, but you just think you have to pinch yourself if you've been in one environment, Paris, Paris, Paris Texas to Paris, France, you got to kind of pinch yourself going, this is great. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you didn't have the off factor, though. You were, you never had the off factor. You always had the inner belief system that you could be there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I never felt intimidated anywhere I went. I mean, I just felt that I could have gone sooner. And just life kept holding me back somehow, you know? Well, I heard Lendl say this not too long ago. But when you had the success at the Orange Bowl, the Orange Bowl used to be the, the tournament. Yes. It was bigger, than, bigger than the majors. Yes. The, the, like the Junior U.S. Open and Junior yes. Wimbledon. Yes. It used to be, yeah. If you look at the draws, it's unbelievable. I saw you. I mean, you you had already made it to that international level, and as you said, you disappeared when you yeah. went to school in New Mexico. Right. <laughs> exactly. And then all the years on the tour, so it was close to 10 years you played on the tour? Eight, nine eight, years? Eight, eight years, years, yeah. Eight full years, yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, I was, I called Kent DeMars. I said, Coach, maybe I come back to be an assistant coach and do an MBA. And you did that? No. No. I didn't do it because I got a call from uh, Dickie Dell, who was the manager of Gabriella Sabatini. Donald Dell's brother? Yes. The, uh, I got a text message today. I'm honored to get a text message from uh, Christina Dell. She, someone told her to bring their little kids to you know, have their strokes filmed and work on technique and whatever. But Yeah, so tell us. Yeah, I know this story. Dickie Dell, tell us, tell us how that went. Yeah, he just said, how, I, I knew Gabriella because she trained with Carlos, who was a very good friend of mine, Carlos Kimaya, who was her coach. Yeah. So, and he said, hey, uh, Carlos is not going to travel certain weeks. Would you like to go with Gabriella to uh, the Australian swing and, the, you know, Asia? Carlos is gonna, only going to go to the Australian Open. And I said, ah, I'm not a coach, but, you know, I said, yeah. Why, why do you think Dickie Dell pulled, pulled your name out of that? I, I have no idea. Maybe Carlos said something wrong. I, I have no idea. I know. I, I mean, I, I just think about you being on those Tyler Junior College courts. Is that just a look in your eye and the <laughs> command from your voice? Uh, <laughs> but listeners, he's talking about G- Gabriella Sabatini. I mean, she's an icon. Yeah. So from Argentina. All of a sudden, I'm on. I, I was in. I was on vacation. At the end of the year, it was like I was in one of the best places for me in the world in Angra dos Reis, which is a very nice place with beaches and, and islands, and it's it's great. It's, I even have a beach house there. It's near about two hours south of Rio, and, and then this came up, and I said, "Yeah, let's go." So I got on a plane, went down to uh, Buenos Aires, then we flew down to Australia, and that's when my coaching career started. Wow, I have in my notes. Uh 
Steven Spielberg said this about Penelope Cruz, the, the famous movie producer. Mm-hmm. Said it's very difficult for him to work with Penelope Cruz because he can't stop staring at her. <laughs> I mean, so Gabriella Sabatini is so beautiful. I mean, how did you uh, not stare at her? How did you talk to her? Well, no, no I mean, she's very down to earth. Yes, very, she is. She was very shy. She was very down to earth, very nice, very polite. Uh, and we already knew each other. You know, I practiced with her sometimes when she went to Brazil. Carlos would ask me to hit with her sometimes. So, so, so athletic. Yes, very athletic. What and year? What year was that? That's ninety three. Nineteen ninety three. She won the open in ninety, right? Nineteen ninety. Yeah, nineteen ninety. Yeah. So you started at the top. Yes. <laughs> you know, and then she, we yeah. went there. First time was in Sydney. She went to the finals. Then Australian Open. She lost in the semis to Sellers. Uh, and then we went to Tokyo. She got sick. Then we came back to Miami. And then all of a sudden, what happened was that. When I, when I was in the locker room in Australia, all the guys were I still I was still top 100 in doubles. So all the guys are going, who are you playing with them? I said, I'm not playing. So what are you doing here then? I was like, I'm coaching Sabatini. I, was, I wasn't really, you know, I, mean, I, w- I didn't have that, that uh, badge of coach, you know? Yeah. So I was kind of a little, yeah, I'm, I'm coaching her, but, you know, I'm, this is the... And then all of a sudden... Few weeks later, a couple of guys started calling me and said, "Hey, come on over, travel with me, come with me." And then I'm going like, "Wow, you know." And then that's how it developed. And yeah. were you when you first started coaching? Were you based out of Rio de Janeiro? I was based out of Rio, but you know, when you're coaching on the tour, you're not based. Yeah, it depends on your player. If you really want to do a good job, you just basically pack your bags and you're ready to go. Especially at that time. Nowadays, it's a different story. Guys can pay different, you know, it's right. a different setup. And you were single too. I was single completely. I mean, it was like, you know, I didn't have to go back to anything. So basically I would go back to change clothes or whatever, but I could go weeks, months just traveling as long as I was okay with myself. So did you have an agent as far as like, you know, I mean, Dickie Dell was, I mean, his brother, obviously Donald Dell is so right. famous. Dickie Dell was an agent too. Right. right? So did he, you like have so many weeks with pros? How was that set up as far as contracts? No, I mean it, it just it was very organic. You know, I, I in the beginning when I just finished school, I was speaking with Advantage, uh, you know, the company Advantage, yeah, and uh, ProServe also a little bit. But you know, I, those guys, I don't, I don't even mention the name of the guys that were the, like the owners of the companies. But anyway. I wasn't a top player, you know, when I was finishing school. So it didn't make much sense to even have an agent. I, said, I even said, what am I going to have an agent? What are you going to, you're going to find me a contract for what, you know? So I need to do something before you can have an agent. And then same thing with, a, with being, a, being a coach. I mean, I wasn't a coach at the time. I was, I was a good player. I was well known in the player field. I was, I had very good relations with everyone. I spoke, you know, quite a few languages, you know, I, I kind of, had nibbled a little bit with French, Italian, and I was always a very communicative guy, was part of the player council, so I was known. And I think that networking kind of helped me to kind of have the doors open And when I said, okay, I'm coaching. And then, as far as Spanish, as a Brazilian, uh, in South America, you, you travel so much, you learned Spanish at a really young age? No. No? No. Portuguese and, and uh, Spanish are very similar, but at 
at the same time are very different. If you are if you are Brazilian, you can better understand the Spanish guys better. It's tougher for them to understand us. But once you start being close to each other, then it's much easier because the the writing is almost the same. Just a few words here and there. Verb conjugation is very much similar. And then you just need to learn a few tricks here and there. But um, to, well. to back up, uh, South Carolina uh, was known to have a, a degree uh, called international business. Right. Did, did, were you in that program? No, I was not because it was called the MIBS. Uh, and it's up until today, I think, is the best in the U.S. It's the international business program. It's number one in uh, in the U.S. I know US. it's highly ranked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I had a couple of friends that were in it, but no, I, I did. I I was in computer science, and then I said, "Oh, too much math." And then when I redshirted, I went into business school, but I did marketing and man, uh, systems analysis. So it was a. Uh, I didn't go into the program at that time. But it was very, it, it's, I mean, that was something that I was thinking about doing on my MBA on when I called Coach Tamaris and said, hey, maybe I'm coming back. And <laughs> well, all those experiences are interconnected. So certainly that, um, let's, let's keep going on the coaching. I know they've been, you know, obviously so many, you did so many things in other areas of tennis. Uh, we opened up by going through uh, how, how deep, how impressive your background is. It's not just related to what goes on the court, but also what goes on off the court. Um, so, yeah, why don't you go on with, uh, you know, like your Davis Cup experience. How many years were you a player? Then how did you transition into being the, the captain? The Davis Cup experience for me was unreal. Uh, it was a dream, I, which I think is probably for every player. I don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't think a player wouldn't dream about being not being a Davis Cup player, especially the way it was played during our time. Now it's different. Uh, I think they changed the format, and you know, anyway. Uh, but it was a dream when I would get, I got the call to go for the first time. Uh, we played in Chile. Uh, you can imagine playing Davis Cup in South America. It's an experience that you don't get anywhere else. It the crowd is. And there's no respect, you know. I mean, there's, there's not, it's not a tennis crowd. I think you get a little bit of that when you go to watch a match in Miami. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's not even. <laughs> I mean, you know, they throw shit at you. They, 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 you know, they throw stuff at you. They will yell. They will. Oh Jesus! It's it. You gotta be tough to to play under those conditions. And we went into Chile. We played a a very good team, and we beat them. Um, you know, had Gilde Meister, Acuna. It was it was a tough team. To beat, and I remember we went. I didn't. I I got really pissed at the coach because I didn't play the doubles. I was like, the, I was the best doubles players at the team at that time, and he was figuring. He was, you know, it was me, Casio Mota, Luis Mata, and Dacio Campos, and he was playing around with who was going to play with me. But it was actually he made the right call because it was there was no. And then he went with Casio and Luis, who had played before and had more experience. And I was really pissed that I didn't play because, you know, obviously I wanted to play. Right, right, right. But they went on. They won the doubles, which was key for us to win. And when we won the doubles, people were, like, throwing everything at us. We're, like, running into the locker room. And, <laughs> I mean, they cut out the lights. I mean, it's it's typical stuff at that time. That doesn't happen. That, now it doesn't happen like this. But anyway, at that time it was like that. So I, I had a meeting with a coach, and I said, hey, if you're going to, you know, call me for the team and you're going to, you know, do this bullshit,
and not put me on the team and not make me practice on center court, don't call me again. And so the next tie, we're playing against Ecuador in Brazil. And Brazil had been away from the world group for like eight years. And we're playing Gomez, who was, you know, four in the world. Yeah. And it was a very tough match. And then he called me up and he said, hey, you want to come? And I'm going like, well, how's it going to be? So anyway, and, and I ended up going. And anyway, it was, I, I ended up playing and then we won. And then, you know, won in Brazil. So it was a great experience. And next year we're in world team, you know, on the world group, played against Becker in, in Germany, playing on that carpet, fast carpet, which is like Becker never lost a match on, on that surface. It was uh, I experienced uh, 1985. I was a guest with the Suguzo brothers. Uh, yeah, so that was 11,000 Germans in Hamburg uh, screaming. Stuff to play. What do you think of today where the Davis Cup, they've taken away the home and away? It's a different competition for me, and it, it's for me. It's not Davis Cup. It's a different. Call it something else. Well, most experienced players like yourself say that it's not yeah, Davis Cup. It's anymore. not Davis Cup. Davis Cup is is gone. It's gone. Yeah. Sad, huh? It's sad. So many years of tradition. I think that I think it needed change, but not that change, not that drastic of a change. You know, you needed to find a way to get the better players to play more because of calendar and etc. But that is not the, the well, one thing I would recommend it is just not do it every year, every two years, yeah, every but three, then, every four, like, the, like the world cup soccer. There's the power struggle, you know, ITF, you know, the other ones, ATP, yeah. uh, slams, you know, the only thing that ITF has that you know, it's, it's more complicated than just say how have it every two years, every yeah. four years. But I think the way they did it, it's, it, it just went too far. So it, it lost the essence of Davis Cup because it was great when you would go in as a visitor, you know, and it was great when you were playing at home. Different feelings, different perspectives, different ways of approaching the match, different pressure, you know. Uh, you had to prepare yourself differently. I mean, we trained differently, you know, those two weeks before, you know. It, it was... That, that expression, to play for something bigger than yourself. And here in the U.S., as you know... Years ago, I'm, I'm going to guess that you may have even played high school tennis in New Mexico, where everybody played high school tennis, which was a great thing. Now it's almost like nobody plays. I shouldn't say right. it that way, but yeah. the emphasis on homeschool and the top, the top right. kids, that expression, um, the individuals become bigger than the program. So high school tennis, I mean, college coaches don't even really look that way right. because the top, the top juniors are not playing it. But that, that pressure of playing, I mean, that, that's hard to fathom, you know, playing for your country. It is. Uh, it is. It is. And uh, very fortunate to have had that experience. I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to fulfill that dream because it was a dream since I was a kid uh, to reach that level, to be there, to participate, to make a difference, to uh, get the, that experience. Um, yeah, there's, you know, playing different places. I mean, it, it's it's amazing, you know. Uh, too bad it went away. <laughs> yeah, the new guys are gonna, they're not going to feel that anymore. They're not going to understand what that during is. your tenure. Were you a, a player coach on the Davis Cup? At one point, were you doing both? No, no, no. I was already finished with my career. And towards the end of your playing career, did you just specialize and play doubles, or did you always yeah. play both? No, just doubles was was always the thing that you know kind of ignited me. 
And but I was always feeling like if I didn't play singles, it didn't make much sense. And that's the reason why I stopped playing because it got to a point that uh, I wasn't really I wasn't really ready to pay the price to be as good as I could be in singles to train to be dedicated. And then I my last year on tour, I felt really bad because I was just playing the t- doubles tournaments. I was still in the top hundred, playing everything. But I was I felt that I wasn't really a player. I just I felt like I was I was just having fun. I was just you know making a little bit of money, having fun, and and then once my points in singles kind of went away, I said, why am I doing this? You know. So I said, it's time to just go. <laughs> yeah. It's too bad. I was I, I could. You know, if it was today, I wouldn't do that because today the money is different and the structure is different. And in my time, when I was playing, I played all the, most of the singles guys played doubles. So everybody was playing. Right, right. It's nowadays, so different, yeah. nowadays there is a, there's like, you know, 50 guys that play doubles and that's it. If you look at the majors and the, the bigger events, Rarely you're gonna see a singles guys going through from the quarters on, so it's you know. Then I mean, it's when I you know I won. Uh, let's say in in uh, in, in uh, Geneva, one of my titles. I had to beat Gomez and Gildemeister. Gomez was number four in the world in single. Gildemeister was twenty. So you know those guys were. Imagine playing those guys yeah. nowadays, you know, number four in singles, number 20. It's a different story. Right. You know, so it changed. The game changed, you know. The, I think, you know, it's a different story. I mean, and then I would I would still be playing. But at that time, it didn't make sense. So. And was there um, a gap between uh, being a player and being a captain? How, how many years was in between? You were pretty young when you were first captain. In the yes, it was quick. It was quick. I, I I started being. I was like ninety four, five years, five years, yeah, five years. In five years, I was I was captain of the team. And the Brazilians, did they have enough money to fund you properly as a Davis Cup, you know, captain going around and spending time with the players? And well, that's the trick. I was still on tour as a coach. And that's why it still worked, because no, the federation didn't have, you know, it's not like in the U.S. You have you know huge funds, and you can like have a specific guy just to be the captain, and right. he can, no, you can survive at that time. You couldn't survive being just a captain. I don't think even nowadays. So, I, I coached. I was on tour. And that was one of the differences also for being the captain because I knew everyone. I knew how to play everyone. I knew all the coaches. You know, I knew all the players. I knew, I knew the routines of our players because we're traveling. You know, I know the guy I coached was the number two Brazilian guy or number one Brazilian guy at the time. So, and then Google comes up and then, you know, we're very close. We're traveling the same tournaments. We're always, you know, very close to each other. So we knew how to execute we knew how to play everyone. We knew the conditions, and, and then uh, that made me a, a, a special person to be in there. I made a difference because of that. And, and that was the reason why the former captain was kind of placed out, because he couldn't, he couldn't be in that position. You know, he couldn't be traveling. He didn't know what to do. So you were definitely an insider. Exactly. Exactly. So it was... Guga, 
for our young listeners, go to YouTube. Yeah. He's a guy who won the French Open, laid, drew a heart on the court and laid down. Yeah. Um, I, I remember one time being in the US Open and Google was being interviewed and he, his personality, he told the person, the journalist, hey, can I try to just keep this tennis ball going like a soccer ball on his foot during the entire interview? <laughs> and, and sure enough, he did. But um, tell us a story about his brother. I think, you know, his younger brother, who's always, you know, bedridden. And, you know, I know he passed away years ago, but yes, and he dedicated every trophy to him. And that, that, I think that was something that all juniors should learn that uh, he was having so much fun playing tennis. And he goes, I always just think about my brother. I'm out here running, running after tennis balls. I can talk about that a little bit. Google is very special. You know, his family, his dad died when he was very young. Eight or nine years old, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So his mom has to raise him, his brother, and his young brother who had, you know, he, was, he had a disability. So right. it was tough. I, I know the family quite well. I know his mom and his brothers. And Guilherme was the young one. So, And Google was he's a very special individual. I mean, he's a guy that... Everybody uh, loves that guy, huh? Yeah, it's tough not to love the guy. The guy, yeah. is, the guy is very humble, um, but has a very good perspective on things, you know. Okay, Google wins the French Open, okay, out of nowhere. <laughs> the next year, he's walking around. He goes in a, the player's restaurant. He's walking barefooted. <laughs> So, like, you know, we, we had a session, you know, he was training with my player, with Fernando, and then, but with, you know, let's go eat lunch. And then he's walking into the player's lounge barefoot, and people are going like, what the heck, what is he doing? That's the way he is, you know, he walks barefooted. So that, that's the type of guy he is. Uh, and then uh, fierce competitor, fierce competitor. Great, great mover, great, very supple, very athletic. And he, he uh, but with a very sense of, of, of down-to-earth life, you know, and, 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 but, you know, hard worker, Jesus, on, on, on our routines on Davis Cup, we, we trained quite hard on Davis Cup. Uh, we made a, a, a point, when we played in Brazil, we made a point of playing in, on clay in the hardest condition as possible. Nobody could beat us. Because, you know, we, and we would train very hard. We would, two weeks before we were there, the whole team, I would bring juniors, I would bring two extra guys to practice with us. And the leaders were the number one and the number two guys. They would be on the court all the time. Google would have, sometimes I had to say, hey, stop, you've hit 35 lines. And no, a few more, let's go. And I'm going like, oh, shit, let's go. You know, so uh, one day, one week, Uh, one one tie before we played uh, uh, was the Czech Republic or Slovakia. We played Slovakia. We had a very good team, Herbati and uh, Kuchera. He played the finals against Sampras in Miami on that on a Sunday, and he flies in on on a, overnight. And he he arrives at the airport, and I say, hey. He calls me on my phone. I say, hey, yeah, coming over. I say, hey, go to the hotel, relax. And now. Get the court ready, man. I'm going to practice. I'm going, no, man, relax. Uh-uh. We're going to win this weekend. I got I to get on the court. So the guy flies overnight after playing five sets with Sampras the night before. He goes on the court and stays. The, I mean, it's like out of, out of, I mean, I've never seen that. I mean, it's the dedication, the, 
the way of doing things was absurd and plus perfection, you know. And he had a guy, Larry, Larry Passos was, was his coach from forever, yeah. Forever. Larry was like his second dad, you know, and Larry was by his side all the time. Uh, Larry was also with me half of the time on Davis Cup. Uh, but it was a guy that always knew how to push him, push him and push him and push him, you know, and knew how to, the right buttons to get him going, uh, which it was kind of, you know, they were made for each other, I guess, you know. Yeah, it's very moving. It's on YouTube, uh, the, the Hall of Fame speech. Larry is there and talk about humble. I think of Rod Laver, I think of Nadal. It's amazing how many champions are unlike, say, John McEnroe or Jimmy Connors. There's a, <laughs> I don't know one guy that doesn't like Uga on the tour. Yeah, no, I, I don't know anybody. revered, yeah. I don't, even guys that didn't play with him, they like him. It's like, it's, and if you get to meet him, you, you understand why. Good personality. Yeah. So. Well, how about a different personality? You coach Rios. I mean, he was not, he was number one in the world. It, it was, tell us about his career. It was very short, but it's completely different personality. Completely different. Marcelo was, um, well, also, like I said, very a perfectionist in terms of training, in terms of working hard, in terms of doing. I'd never had an, everybody said, oh, you had a hard time working with Marcelo. No, zero. Very professional. Marcelo was like, you know, I, I would train him as hard as I wanted. I would do the routines as much as I wanted. I would say, let's do this, and he was up to do it. Um, it, it was not an issue for him. The guy would, you, you don't get to be number one being lazy or being right. whatever. So, I mean, the guy was, I, I didn't, he respected me, so I, I didn't have an issue with him in terms of doing this or that. His issue was more of outside. He didn't have many friends, a lot of on his own. I even tried to help him a little bit, and I suggested him. In Brazil, what we did, what I did with every one of my players, we, we always, always felt that first, uh, I needed to have my play, all my play, I also managed most of my players, I also managed their careers. So one of the things I did, I didn't do, I didn't manage Marcelo anyway, but because he already was managed by ING. Yeah. But uh, most of the players that I managed, I always felt that I had to make them have more value in the market where we were especially in Brazil, because, you know, so if you're in Brazil, I knew how to handle quite well. So I, I always organized to have a press liaison or a press company behind my players to make sure that when they had a good result, it was well exposed. And also when we had to position themselves differently outside of tennis because of tennis. So we can get a better contract on, you know, whatever, a bracket deal or clothing deal or outside. So, uh, in that sense, having a press liaison or someone to do like that works well because it doesn't allow you to be in such a difficult situation. It kind of eases the way. Google, by the way, Google and uh, my other guy, Fernando, also, they always had it. I think we were the first guys that did it in, on tour because I don't remember anybody doing it before. And then now, you know, uh, uh, Benito did, you know, Djokovic and Benito... Perez Barbadillo, who worked for the ATP, he did, he was, you know, in Nadal's press. He did Djokovic and Nadal in the beginning. So, I mean, he was like more or less in that same type of idea years later. But uh, I actually introduced that to Marcelo. I said, Marcelo, 
let me help you with this because this is someone that can kind of ease that tension in between the press and you. And it took him two seconds. I don't give a shit about it. <laughs> he says, I don't give a shit about it. Don't worry about it. So that, that's the way he was. I mean, he would walk on, the, on, on, on an interview and he would just say whatever he had on his mind. At the Australian Open one year, everybody was talking, uh, you know, the, the Williams were talking about, you know, oh, we can play with the man, we can play with the man, this and that. And there was a lot of stuff going on and none of the guys were stepping out. And I was going, Jesus, man, at one of these times, he's going to say something. So we're there playing and he wins the first round and nobody asks anything. He wins the second round. Nobody, I'm just saying, the first guy that asks him the question is going to go... And then, you know, he gets to the quarterfinals, and someone asked him the question. And he said, hey, come on, let's start the bullshit. Just call Karsten Brush and let Karsten Brush answer you guys the question. Stop talking about, you know, they can beat, you know, the man. And you know the story about the Karsten Brush, yeah. the German guy who was number top 200 years earlier when they started this thing way, way, way back then. And they, they played against, you know, said, so I'll play the guy that's number 200. It was Karsten. Carson is a German guy, lefty, who drinks and smokes all the time. He's very famous for smoking cigarettes on the court, drinking beer all the time. Very cool guy. <laughs> and he played them like a set each, and he beat like 6-1, 6-1, both of them. So Marcella just, you know, he, he's, that's, that was the type of thing that he would do. He wouldn't be quiet whenever he had to say something. So, no, he wasn't difficult to, to work with. Uh, it's too bad that, you know, he had a lot of injuries a little bit here and there. Yeah, that was back. my next question, because his, 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 his career was cut short. Yeah, just like Guga. Guga had, for me, I never saw a person with, the, with a pain, um, how do you say, uh, when you can tolerate pain a lot. I never seen someone tolerate pain as much as he. He was the guy that could tolerate pain as much, and I think that's probably why he got his hip hurt because he could play on the pain. I mean, I, I saw played, played injured for a while. Yeah, he would just play, he'd just play. He would just push, and no, you know, he would be. I mean, that guy was unbelievable. He would play five sets one day. You played doubles the next day. He played five sets the other day on Davis Cup, and he would be like dead and he'd just like get up and you'd be the first guy like <laughs> i mean some of the stories if i tell you is unbelievable so he had the body where it looked like he could run all day yeah you know unfortunately you know in his in google's case the, the the body cut his career short he would have done a lot more had he not been you know with his hip and marcelo is the same thing marcelo had you know one issue with his ankle issue with his back i mean it's uh, but his way of controlling the ball, I will tell you. I'm, this is Rios. Rios, yeah. He he had a ball impact that I've never seen before. It's unbelievable. It was very and very smart. You know, I would tell him something because you know when you when you when you're coaching these guys, you know, on the top, you, you're not you're not really telling. I mean, you're not coaching him to how to play tennis. You have to be, you know, you have to uh, coach him how to approach the opponent, what is, you know, little details. And they're very fast on seeing it, you know. That's yeah, a, I think Joe Public doesn't really get that, you know. And so uh, 
you know, Murray starts to work with Lendl. It's not like he's going to start teaching him the ready position. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's the final details, you know. So you're going to tell the guy this. And the things I, I was, I think I did well with Marcelo is that exactly that. I said, hey, hey Marcelo, I, this and that. And he goes, really? And he would adjust in two seconds. And one day we, we arrived, the first time we arrived in, in, uh, in, in Washington to play. And I said, hey, hey I'm looking at your stat. You know how many aces you hit in the last, I don't know, month and a half, two months? And it was very little. And he used to hit a lot of aces. And I go, and he said, yeah, well, my serve is wrong. No, no, you're obvious. I can tell. I mean, I, I, I know exactly where you're going to serve, Marcelo. If I know, the other guy's coach also knows, man. So are you serious? Yeah, you're, you're being too obvious. You serve here that time. You serve here in this one. In one match, he starts again. Ace, he started. So it's basically, you know, just clicking a little thing. Hey, your forehand, you're doing just little, you know, you came from indoors, you're not indoors. You do, your swing is this. It's, really? It's, boom. He adjusts in one second. So those guys. Yeah, yeah so you're really more of a mentor or confidant than a technician. Yeah. Like t- yes. I mean, it's just a little bit of the details, you know. And then, and then motivation. I think the thing for him, if he didn't feel the ball on the racket, that kind of turned him off because he always felt that he had to feel the racket perfect, the ball perfectly on his, on his racket. He was so perfectionist. You know, he strung six rackets every day. New, <laughs> you know, just like Sampras would do. You know, six rackets, new rackets. Next day, cut them up, six rackets, new rackets, even if you don't use it. Every match, you go walk on a court. They have to be perfectly with this, like that. So yeah. those... And then certainly with the entourage, the more people involved, the more management required. So you got you to help. It's not just the player. You're dealing with the whole team. Nowadays, Steve, uh, you know, about the tournament in Brazil, I have a couple of coaches that... <laughs> it's funny for me. The managers are calling from Europe to sign up for practice court. I go, What? This is ridiculous, man. Hmm. There's some now. The tour nowadays is uh, yeah. It's it's different. How about the player uh, Fernando Melgini? This is interesting that he had a two-hander. You changed him to one-hander. You worked with him for a long time too. Yeah. Tell us Fern- a little Fernando about that story. was a Fernando's a it's a great story because I was working with Nicolas Pereira at the time, and he's on the tennis channel now. Yes, yeah. Nico is in the Seems like a great personality. Nico's a great guy. Nico is, Nico is like a brother. So, but uh, uh, he, I always liked, at that time, I always liked to work with two players. I felt that, you know, having, because, because of scheduling, because of sharing, a lot of times, you know, is economically also is better to have two guys. But anyway. So Nico and I said, hey, maybe Fernando could be. So we try and we, give, we, we bring him to Mexico, Mexico City, the tournament in Mexico, the ATP, which is now in Acapulco. And it was our first tournament together with Fernando. And then Fernando, I knew him from Brazil. I had played against Fernando because he's a few years older, than, uh, younger than me. But, you know, and I, I hated playing him because he was like, you know, he was like a rabbit on the court. You run every ball down, uh, very steady. Good forehand and basically a lot of heart. So we get to Mexico and same thing. I said, hey, I'm going to just tweak a few things here and there on you. 
and you know, as a lefty, I said, mm, "Lefties can be a pain in the butt if you know how to play as a lefty." So I said, "I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna impose all the lefties that I played against. I'm gonna let you be the, you know, the pain that I that they've caused to me." So, and then I started saying, "Hey, use this serve a little bit more. Do this more. Do this and that." And then he was loving it, and he would do it, you know, out of the bat. So, right there, first tournament that he, he we're together. First time he makes the finals of a tour event, he loses to Mooster in the finals. Seven six seven six, so seven six seven five, something like that. Very tight match. Almost wins the tournament. So we clicked, and then all of a sudden, you know, we started working and working. And it was a guy that had so much heart. So Argentina, much. right? No, this is a great thing for you to bring because he was born in Argentina, but he came to Brazil when he was three years old, and he's he's. Adopted, not just he's adopted, he's uh, chose to be Brazilian. And that was something that he carried along his, the middle of his career, which was tough for him to deal with. Very tough, because he was considered Argentinian, but not really an Argentinian. And he was uh, considered Brazilian, but not really a Brazilian. Wow. Yeah, it was tough for him. It was tough to deal with it, you know, especially when you got to be, you know, Davis Cup. In Olympics, Olympics, I can tell you some stories. That well, like, you guys are very close. What's he do now? He's ESPN commentator in Brazil. Wow. Yeah, and he does all sports or just tennis. Just tennis, and he does clinics all weekend long. Lots of tennis clinics all over Brazil. Uh, he's very much into uh, uh, also doing a mentorship for younger kids. He, he has a system which is quite nice. He does it online with like 50 kids per semester. And he, he brings like he brings me on the show with him to talk about some things, brings former players, and all these kids can have access to this information with him. So it's quite nice. No. It's usually a one-hander going to do a two-hander. Can you just go back on that a little bit more? Two-hander well, to one. Well, okay, so we start going. He wins, he wins his first title in Bostad. In, in Sweden, yeah. winning, you know, unbelievable tournament on clay. Then he wins the the Pinehurst tournament, which was U.S. clay courts, yeah, which is now that, Houston. Yeah. Uh, so he, second title. Then he wins Prague. Uh, by the way, he, you know, on clay courts, he beats Villander in the finals. Uh, on Bostad, he beats Costa, he beats Norman, he beats Christian uh, Rude, uh, Rude's Fine, father. Yeah. yeah, so anyway... In Prague, he beats Kafelnikov, he beats Safin. So he's like, his ranking is the range of uh, 50, well, not, not, it's 50 to 70, 70 something, but just because he wins these tournaments, because his actual ranking for me was like 80 to 90, 80 to 100, because his back end was a little flaw. The better players, when they found it, they, they, it was a hole. So it got to a point, and this is, the, this is the true story. We get to the end of the year, and he's 80, and Guga is coming up. And Guga is also around 80. And they're playing the semis of a challenger in Brazil. Last time of the year, we have played in Europe all, all the end of the year. There's a challenge, the promoter makes a, a challenge in Brazil in Campinas, and we go. And they're playing, they, they come in the same side of the draw, they play in the semis. Whoever wins that, that match, will be the number one Brazilian player for the end of the year. So it's like, you know, pride. Big deal. Yeah, big deal, exactly. So they start playing, and uh, 
big match, center court, full TV, all of good stuff, and he loses 6-3 in the third. So I go back in the locker room with him, and he's like bummed out, you know, he's really down. You know, yeah, I lost it. I said, yeah, this young kid is good. Now we know how it is. And I was waiting for a moment to approach him to make this change. Because I've been trying everything that I could to make this back and better. And I said, there's no more, not more that I can do. I can't do anymore. I've tried everything. You know, I've tried everything. But let's, you know, early, get over here, change a little bit here and there without major change. I said, no, there's no way I can make it any better. I try to hide it, you know, you know, tactically. I say, hey, run around, do this, get the first ball here. I mean, just everything. I said, there's no way. And I knew that if I didn't change that, there was no, no chance for him to go into the top, top 50. So whenever, when that happened, I said, hey, uh, you have two weeks of vacation now because it was at the end of the year. I said, we start training preseason in two weeks. And in two weeks, uh, I'm going to change your backhand. Because if you want to beat this kid, we need to change it. I didn't tell him what I was going to do. I said, we're going to change it. And he said, whatever, make the plan, I'm doing it, okay. Wow, it's great for people to hear that. And then I said, okay, we meet in two weeks, go to the beach, go with your girlfriend, disappear, I'll see you in two weeks. And that was it, and then we changed it. And then, how, you know what I did it? One month, he didn't hit one life ball for one month because we had a break before Australia. And I hit him, he, he would start every session on the wall, every session, you can imagine this, on the wall, dead ball, we didn't have green dot balls at that time. Right, right, right. So I had all these old balls that I opened the cans before to make them, you know, mushy. And he was like 15 minutes back in on the wall, every beginning of practice, end of practice, twice a day. And then by the time we got to Australia, a month and a half later, he won his first match in Australian Open. So no live ball, so you just fed balls to him? Fed balls to him all the time. Or, or I would hit with him, but I, would, I wouldn't put, put him to, like, he didn't play a match. Yeah. He didn't play a match. We, we, he, I'll, I'll, I'll lie. He played one match, two matches before we went to Australia. And I said, that's it. And then he beat uh, Prinosil, 8-6 and 5th. <laughs> for to, to get his first, he never won the first round in Australia. Hard courts was tough for him. So I changed it from a two-handed to a one-handed. He didn't even know what I was, was going to do. He said, oh, I, did, I had no idea. I mean, he said he was going to change it, but yeah, we're going to do it one-handed, man. Sounds it, like he had the coaches, that he had the right attitude for, as far as coachability. Yeah, he was very coachable, very coachable. Uh, I mean, it is, as much as I, th- I mean, I think it was, okay, merit for me, but for me, I think it's merit for him to be accepted, you know, to be open for it and to be, okay, let's do it. And that's it. Those are two powerful points. One, Rios. I heard um, someone say that about Roger Federer is that talent is when you tell them to you show somebody one time and they can just do it. Yeah. But then also, too, it's, it, it is a talent to be so coachable. Exactly. Where you say, okay, coach, whatever you say. That's what his dad actually said. And your talent is not being a great ball striker or whatever. Your talent is being a kid that you're, you work hard and you, you listen. That's his dad. That's so, so powerful. Yeah. And then he, um, what was his best result? Semis of the French. Wow. A year and a half later, after this, after this, after this change, you started having the best results of his, his uh, career. He went to semis of the French exactly two years later, two Frenches later. So, 
Yeah, because he could start passing, returning better. He didn't have to run around so much. I mean, it just opened up another tactical option that he couldn't have because of the other back end. So, how about your game? What was your, if you had a hole in your game, what would you say it would have been? Go back to Mark Wilder. <laughs> that guy was just, uh, yeah. he was so good physically, so good mentally. Yeah. And, you know, he was, you just think of that baseline player, counterattacker. But you had an all-court game. I right. mean, you had a, the yeah. one-hander. Yeah. I I would say my patience. I wasn't as patient as I could be. Whenever I was calm and patience, and, and patient, I, I, I could be, you know, hanging with anyone. You know, that's it's you know, I remember I watched you play so much when you're younger, is that that makes sense because you could hit every shot. Yeah. I felt I felt like that. Yeah, exactly. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I'm gonna stay here, there, whatever. Uh credit to my brother, who kept on telling the coach, my brother showed me a letter from this coach. Can you believe this? Years later. No not years later, Back few, when you were yeah. Early, early, early teens. He showed me the letter. See, this is the letter the guy co- the Ayrton wrote a letter to her dad, to her mom and dad, saying that he, he he's a great player, but you know he it's tough for him kids. He wants to do these things. He wants to be flashy. He want blah, blah, blah. and I go, I'm glad you you kept on. You know, my brother saying, no, let him be like that. <laughs> so yeah, I felt like I could hit every shot. And you know, movement. Maybe I could move better too. I think. I, I could. I was always powerful, you know. I felt like I could play in type of power. Oh no, the ball coming off your racket, yeah. boom! Yeah. You know, when I f- first met you, I I had come from the Vic Braden Tennis College, where there's such an influence on science, and there's upon upon impact, there's spin, speed, trajectory, but there's also sound. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he has to be doing something right. <laughs> you know, there are intangibles too. I mean, it's just right. like this is an attitude. He, yeah. He's 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 not going to push. He's going to hit out. Yeah. How about your brother? What was his game style? He was he was aggressive too. Yeah, he would have a good serve, a good forehand. He would like to come in too. Did he did he play after going to Mexico? Did he played college tennis in the states. No, or? my brother went into the academic thing. He's a very well known architect worldwide. He's a here in the states or in Argentina uh, or Brazil. He he lives in Europe. He's he's an urbanist. Works for the UN. He has worked for the UN, not not now anymore, but he's known worldwide for um, being an urbanist. So he he takes care of cities, he planning and all this stuff. Wow. Yeah. So he was your architect too. Yeah. Really. That's true. That's true. Talk yeah. to us about a little bit about tennis politics, uh, serving with the ATP Council, and um, I mean, if you were the commissioner for the, the day, I mean, that's a question people often ask. You know, obviously there's a big upside to tennis, but if commissioner of the day, what are some things that uh, you look back upon that could be done better in tennis today? Well, I had the experience of being on a player council uh, and then the experience of being on the player on, on, on the board of the ATP. So those two things that are similar, but at the same time, Antagonic. Say that again. They're they're similar, but they're different at the same time. Because when you're in the when you when you have a player culture, you have your view uh, much centered into yourself. 
And then when you come out of that situation and you go to the next one, you, you view from the outside and you see some of the things that you could do better and maybe what you're thinking as a player doesn't work as a whole for the sport. So, oh, that's well put. Yeah. And, and then when you're there representing the guys, a lot of times you may have to take decisions that as a player, you don't understand why you have to go that route. But when you take off the player hat and you start having a little bit more vision on the world and what's the business of it, you understand that, you know, you, you can't go this, the route of, of, of what the player thinks. And then I think more and more, the player culture nowadays is much more centered player wise. And, you know, guys are not really interacting with the other guys too much. They own to their own groups and they don't get exposed to different thoughts, to different ideas, to different views. And then they just self-centered too much. So there's a lot of friction. I think when I was there, there was a lot of friction. And one of the things that kind of took me away a little bit was that was some of the decisions were made more on politics than on business sense on what was best for the, the game, let's say. And that turned me off a little bit. You know, certainly I'm connected to the grassroots level, you know, training tennis teachers, training tennis players. We have the alphabet soup, you know, from, you know, how do they say it? From 50,000 feet away, it seems like it's pretty complicated. With the ATP, the WTA, you just go on and on. It's a lot of, you know, it's fragmented. And there is a lot of power. There's a lot of power plays, which is sometimes is not is not the best for the game. And, and then the players, say for example, the ITF, that's not connected with the pensions, correct? So someone like no. yourself who played for eight years, all that money from the majors doesn't help the players in their retirement, correct? Well, the pension is funded by the ATP and the terms on the ATP, and now. I don't know if the Grand Slams are starting to come to start have started to uh, contribute. Kick, kick into that, yeah. yeah. So, um, but the the ITF is completely disconnected to that. Completely, there's there's no no gel. Uh, different vision, different purposes. I think a lot of times you hear my son. Uh, one time I asked him, he was at the future level and he won. Uh, Singles and doubles, and as a father, I said, "Well, what did you? What was the what was the check?" And he said, "Eighteen hundred. And I said, "Well, what did you win for playing doubles?" And he looked at me and said, "I wish you didn't ask me that because that it was combined. That's what he had won for for winning both." But so at the entry level, but then at the retirement level, there's problems with finances, correct? In other words, the pension, the, the, all that money from the majors, you know, like it doesn't go in. I've always understood it doesn't go back into the pension. It's either it's what the WTA and the ATP tournaments produce, not the majors, where yeah. there's the major major money. Yeah, exactly. The, the, there is so much money being made by the slams. Yeah, and that is one of the biggest um, uh, issues for the players. Um, I was involved in in that negotiation a lot when I was on the board, a lot, quite a few years back. And most of the guys that are playing nowadays have no idea of this, but this. And at the end, what happened, I'll cut the story short, but I mean, we've made a, a player meeting. Everybody said, okay, you guys are authorized to negotiate with the slams to get a better cut of the prize money. Everybody signs a letter. 
most of the guys. We 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 set a quota of number of guys that had to sign the you know within the top hundred for us to be meaningful. And everybody signed. We got our quota. We got to the French. We you know approached Slams and said, hey, we are um, we would like to do this and that. This would like to propose different you know share of prize money because you guys contribute. 15% of total revenue, <laughs> which is absurd. And okay, the next, the next letter that we needed players to sign was, guys, you're authorizing us to decide that in the next year, we may boycott one of the slams. So most of the guys signed it. This was in French. What year was that? Uh, 2000 maybe yeah 1000 2001 yeah something like that by the time we got to Wimbledon I had guys coming back had, who had signed the letter to me and said hey can you give me the letter back and why is that agents federations sponsors hey you guys can't do this so a lot of a lot of guys backed out so it's like, years yeah. later Federer, Nadal, and I think Djokovic kind of, they embraced the, and they approached a different way. And I think they got, they got a different discussion going on, which, but I don't think it's there yet. In 73, the players boycotted. Nikki Pilic, uh, former Yugoslavia, he didn't play Davis Cup. So they, at Wimbledon, they said, you don't play Davis right. Cup, you can't play Wimbledon. And then... There was a few players I know, uh, Connors, Metrovelli. There was a few players that played, but mm -hmm. it was almost, it was right. close to 100% of the right. top players didn't play. Yeah. So I think tennis, from what I see, you know, you know, from the experiences I have, you know, I've been running events also, challengers, and I'm involved in Rio Open, and I, I think there's a lot of potential. We've had, in Rio, we had the best tournament of our history. So this this addition out 2023 sold out, great crowds, everything was great. I mean, just can't complain. So and with Rio, uh, how involved were you with the Olympics? I know that you're obviously carrying the torch and coaching. Um, how has that been for the for the country? It's always interesting afterwards. Like, hey, what happened in Montreal? And you know, they spent all this money. What happened in this city and that city? And well, Olympics first Olympics I went as a player in Seoul. You know, and, and for me, again, unbelievable experience of being with the other athletes. Also, dream come true, and and then in Sydney, I go as a coach. So I take Guga, I take uh, Jaime Onsins, and I take the girls, uh, the two Brazilian girls. Different perspective, also because I was involved in. There was a lot of issues for Guga to go because he had a different sponsor, clothing-wise, as a committee. <laughs> he almost didn't go. Me. The day we're going to board the plane, he is saying to me, I'm not boarding the plane. <laughs> That's kind of like Michael Jordan with Reebok. Yeah, right? yeah, you know. So Nike and Reebok, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, in the end, we, we found a way for him to go. He went, and by the time we get to Australia, president of our committee, of our Olympic committee, Zovedia to greet him. Imagine, he's number one in the world at that time. So he's like, doesn't want to get a picture with the guy. <laughs> so then, you know, years later, Brazil makes the bid, gets the Olympics, and we're hosting the Olympics. And then you have to say, wow, great, you know, we're going to have, 
great infrastructure. We're going to have, you know, a, a center. And then I started thinking about what happened to the centers in Athens, you know, and Barcelona. And, and you start thinking, Jesus, we, we better work things better than they did, you know. Seoul, the, 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 the Seoul one, I, you know, they run a tournament there, so still going on. But, I mean, a lot of the places, you know, you have to spend a lot of money, do all that, and then all of a sudden you don't use it. Anyway, it was a big boom. Uh, Thomas Bellucci got to the quarter, so Brazilian guys, it was great. We had a hope for the Brazilian boys in terms of the doubles, Melo and uh, Bruno Soares. Melo trained with me in my academy when he was 18, 19, he was number one in the world. Is he really 6'8"? Yeah, he's 202 in, yes, 202 in, in meters. He said, yeah, it's got to be 6'8". I don't know what it is, but it's 202. <laughs> Actually, well, a student of ours, uh, Raven Klassen, played some with him, South African. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. That's right. They won Klassen, a couple, yeah. they won a couple right. of titles. Yes, yeah. yes. I remember him. Guy. He went to Brazil to play a few times. Yeah. South Africa. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Marcelo trained at my academy in Brazil from 19 to 20, 21. 21, yeah, 21. Uh, so it, they had almost a chance. So like him and Bruno were like top 10. We, we thought maybe they would get a, a medal, but no. And you coach Bruno as a kid too? Bruno came to train with me a few times, but not full time, no. He's a but, great, great story too. Yes, he is. He is. He is. Uh, the guy that worked with him was uh, worked for me, the coach that worked with him for a long time uh, in the beginning, not now. At your academy. Uh, yeah, exactly. My academy. So the, Olymp- um, the, the Olympics, uh, it's obviously different. I mean, tennis is, Davis Cup is so big, but then you go and it's all the sports. That must have been even bigger than Davis Cup. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, more overwhelming to go into the stadium as a player than as a coach, the, the opening ceremony and all that. Yeah, the opening ceremony is unreal. It's unreal. Yeah. It, 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 it's, you can imagine that all, the whole world is watching over there, you know. And it's tough to watch the news. There's so much bad news, but when you watch the positives from sports, it's yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and when you the the pre-entry on the Olympic Stadium is really cool because everybody's lined up outside, uh, and then you mingle around to talk to you know because of us being you know tennis players, we know a lot of people, so we kind of it was really funny for us because we could kind of walk around and talk to the guys that were going you know on the other countries and. Um, I think it's a special feeling. Yeah, you know, it's a special feeling that uh, that it's unique. Oh, going back to the Olympics and Meligeni, he was born in Argentina, three years old, comes to Brazil. So Olympics in Atlanta, he's playing for Brazil. Ninety six, probably right. Yeah, ninety six, yeah. exactly. So. He starts winning matches. I, I, he, we were in Europe, and I said, "Well, Fernando, if you lose in the first week, come back to Europe. We're gonna, you know, play the swing here until it was like some clay court tournaments to play." So I stayed in Europe. I wasn't expecting him to go too far. <laughs> anyway, he starts winning. He starts winning. He beats Filipposis. He beats. Uh, blah, blah, blah. He goes to the semis. So now he's playing for a, a medal. Can you imagine? And then, like I said, that is when he disappears of being the Argentinian that is Brazilian, or the Brazilian that is Argentinian, to being a Brazilian. That's when he solidifies his way of being Brazilian, because 
everybody said this guy is more Brazilian than any Brazilian because he's like you know the way he played he threw himself on a court he was like running all over the place he would dive I would I would tell him hey the freaking court is not a pool quit driving <laughs> so he would dive on balls I can't do it it's natural I just go and dive I said well okay I understand that but anyway when he gets to the semis I mean the whole of Brazil is going this guy is going to win a medal that's great comment he's more Brazilian than any Brazilian yeah so kind of love that yeah, and then he plays Bruguera, and he's playing Bruguera in the semis. It's uh, six five for him set point. Misses the first serve. Now yeah, misses the first serve, and then he's about to hit the second serve, and a Brazilian yells out, "He's gonna miss it!" Kind of throws him off. He, he hits the serve, double faults. And we're going like, one of those guys that never, you know, knows tennis. He's thinking about the other guy's going to miss. Wait till he hits the serve in. But then, you know, he kind of loses his rhythm, loses the tiebreaker, loses the second set. So, okay. Next day, he's still got a chance to go for the bronze because he was playing for... Uh, Medal, yeah. For, for be, a, be in the gold medal match. Gold medal match, yeah. And then we'll play Agassi in the finals. So the next match, so the, the third and fourth is against Leander Pais who had a horrible game for him because Leander, you know, coming in all the time, fast court. And Short contact. Yeah, exactly. And going, geez, it's going to be a nightmare. And, and Leander ended up winning. So anyway, he came so close of winning a medal. But that was the tournament. That Olympic, he turned Brazilian right there, 100%. <laughs> no. so that's that's the... Uh, in the selection process, does it carry the torch? That had to be an honor. That was a huge honor. I was really happy that happened. And, and when the Olympic Committee gave me a call, I said, hey, we're, we're calling former Olympians to, you know, have the honor to carry the, the torch. And I go like, Jesus, man, God, that's unbelievable. I said, sign me up. I have it with me. It's my house. It's here. Wow. Yeah, I have it. It goes, goes where you go. That's yes, good. yes. I mean, that's something that, you know, my kids, I don't even know if they, if they have, if they know the value or not, but they see it. And I mean, it's, it was huge. I mean, you, you know, imagine walking, you know, you see that on TV. Now, right. you, you never think of you're going to be part of that. I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, I'm, I'm carrying the torch. At, at that time, there's just one person in the world who's carrying it. Exactly. So I, I felt, you know, when they, when they reached out and they said, hey, would you like to do it? I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> Anybody refuse that? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I carried the torch, man. It's it's unique. So, yeah. with uh, academy, you ran your own academy. Uh, just, just amazing journey in tennis, amazing life in tennis. What, what advice comes to your mind? I mean, obviously, this would be a podcast in itself for tennis parents. I mean, you have a lifetime in tennis. I mean, if you were to say, okay, mom and dad. To run an academy? What no, no, mean? no. To bring up, a, bring up their own kid. Ah, uh, okay. Well, you know, bring up. First of all, you, you need to to find the passion. For me, passion is that it's got to be very, very part of it. The pa the passion has to be there. If the passion is not there. It's a journey that's going to end quick. Because you know. Tennis is, is a journey. Look at my life. Look at my, the life of my family. 
So, it, it, you know, I, I think of my parents when I was playing, when they were taking me on the weekends to play tennis, you know, what they could be doing differently. So it, it, it's a journey. So it has to be passion. Uh, you have to give up some things to get other things. Um, and then once you embrace it, you, you look, how can I make this journey the best as possible? Now let's get into the the nitty gritty of let's let me give my kid the best possibility to be successful at this, whatever it is being the best high school kid, the best in the state, best in the house. I wasn't the best in the house for a while. I mean, I had, yeah. you know, I had my, I, 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 I couldn't beat my brother for a while. You know, I couldn't no, beat I, my mom. <laughs> you know, I couldn't how, how old are you going to be your mom? I, I was only able to beat my mom at 12. 12, wow. And I was good. <laughs> but, you know, I found out because I... When that's, I that's perspective. Yeah. Because, because when, when, I, when I found out that I, on the drop shot, I said, okay, I got it. I drop shot it all the time. So that's, there's no more match. <laughs> so and that was it. And then I said, and then my brother took a little while, but then, you know, by 14 to 15, he, he started saying, okay, you're starting to be better than me. A term we don't use too often in tennis anymore, that you proved that you had the killer instinct. If you're going to drop shot your mom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, no, might... I, there's so many stories like that. I always tell juniors, you know, Sampras was number one in the world for six years, but there was more than six years where he wasn't number one in his family because Stella was older uh, and better. Right. It's, yeah. So like I'm saying, it's a journey. It's, you know, and it has to have passion for you to be there. So once you get that kind of say, okay, you yeah, then you start thinking about, you know, coaches. Like, look at the coach that I had. Luck of the draw or not. That, you know, my parents were. Well, he had the, as you said, he had the passion. He loved yeah, it. Yeah. And, you know, they were intelligent enough to say, hey, I, I was. And this is something that I, I, I say to some parents. I was probably the best player everywhere I trained. Pretty yeah. much. No, TJC, for sure. You know, the one thing about TJC, going back to that, is that, um, you know, today with the, uh, the alphabet soup again, the UTR, the WTN, and all, all the rankings and ratings, uh, what an amazing thing, I'm saying it a second time, for you to, you know, it's like you stepped away from the international scene and went to play high school tennis in New Mexico. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's right. So... Uh, like I said, I probably played everywhere I trained. Not even saying there, but before when I was young, I never, I never felt that I didn't get better because I didn't have guys that were better than me. Because I always had good coaches, and I think that's that was the key for me because my coaches were good enough that even me being thirteen and being able to beat the guys that were eighteen. Or seventeen, or older guys, or you know, whatever, they found a way for me to grow, to keep developing. So, and I, I, I see a lot of people associating just, oh, you have to play with someone better to get better. Sure, okay, I understand that point, and at, at one point it makes a difference. You have to, yeah, you also have to be pushed. But uh, if you have someone that knows how to direct and how to make you get better, it, it's not necessary. I, I even say that Google, Google. Come on, Guga came from Florianopolis. It's uh, it's like coming from uh, Wyoming in terms of tennis. Wow. You know, he would play with kids that are 18 years old that 
I mean, he, there were very little people to play around with, you know? So, wow, that's an amazing story. So, uh, it, but he had a coach that was passionate, that would work him hard, that would, like, travel with him, that would be, you know, and that made the 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 thing work so you're definitely a worldly person that you you definitely know that wyoming's not a hot spot of tennis <laughs> <laughs> land land it's not where you go to learn to surf either i know google was, <laughs> I, I heard him say that he was the worst surfer in the world is that true you ever you know, well i mean Yvonne, he's Yvonne's a surfer he says he's not i mean <laughs> if if you will he's had some clips on 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 youtube that's some big waves actually but um no, I mean he, he's okay. I mean, he he can stand up and do a few cuts. Yeah, so. <laughs> with uh, yeah the parents. I mean, just this morning, you know, it's interesting. I spoke to uh, Roger Fulmer. I mean, the word honor. I mean, what an honor to carry the Olympic torch. But I was honored that he came to spend some time at one of our tennis schools. And you know, he, he, I know he's at least won one, maybe more than one national championship. And he was talking to about you know recruiting players. And he gets he goes, I just want people to love the game. Just want people to love the game, and you know I, I think back when you were, and again I'm blown away by the fact that you were 16. I thought it was really more, and that's where it's great to talk to you that the fact that you spoke English fluently. But I, I just remember you speaking English so well. But the other guys came in, and you were younger, but you were like their big brother. Yes, you were like the big brother, and and uh, you know those few weeks where I ran practice. I mean, I was just giving out drills. I wasn't doing any coaching. But uh, you definitely were hanging around the court. So, I mean, right. you, you were there. Hitting yes. serves, practicing before practice, after practice. and I did, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just extra, extra, extra. Um, but all you guys did. You know, hungry dog hunts best. <laughs> I mean, it was a very, very good environment. Yeah. With um, working with uh, Chris Everett, that history repeats itself. Now, um, you're doing the same thing for your family. I mean, your your kids are here, new 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 country, new language, yeah. and is it the goal is to go on and have a university experience. Yeah, uh, I wanted to provide them, my kids, the same opportunity that I had. And when they embarked on the on the you know tennis, in the beginning, um, I always felt, even my wife was saying, you don't want the kids to play tennis. And I said, no, I would love them to play tennis. And so why do you always try to go somewhere else? Because I don't want to force them to play tennis. So, but they want to play. I said, okay, but I, I just want to make sure that I'm not forcing them to play because it's easy for me to just jump on the wagon and say, let's go, you know. And then at one point I said, well, I mean, they want to play. So I said, okay, so they want to play? All right, let's do it. So I, you know, had a coach take care of them, you know, knowing how to do the, you know, I had a coach that was very good with the young ones and anyway, initiate them in the right way, etc. And then if I saw them that they were, you know, wanting to do it and wanting to do it. And then it got to a point in Brazil that was, okay, we're going to start traveling. And I'm going like, okay, we're going to, you know, get into competitive tennis. Luca was 10, nine, nine to 10. Julia was like, look, yeah, no. Yeah, Julia was a 10 and he was 8. So I said, geez, here we go. So I'm thinking, you know, okay, we're going to start traveling. And in Brazil, you don't have a lot of tournaments. It's not like here. You can just basically drive 20 minutes and you play whenever right. tournaments you want. I mean, basically, I'm starting to get on the plane and flying two hours to play a match, two matches. There's no back draw. Spending a whole week, hotel, staying, you know I me. Mean, 
me, I'm doing what I was doing. <laughs> but I'm with them, okay, I love it. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, you know, I would love to do that. But then I say, oh, but if we're going to do this right, I mean, this is not the, you know, the best environment to do it, you know. Then all of a sudden I'm saying, we're playing the same kids, you know, nationally. So I'm, I'm, I'm leaving from Rio to go to Sao Paulo to play the same kids, to go to Brasilia, to go to Porto Alegre. You know, it's like I'm flying to Austin or I'm flying to, you know, Memphis, I'm flying to Atlanta, and I'm playing the same kids. Because, you know, it's not like the U.S. You have, you know. Right. So I said, well, let me give him the opportunity to do this. So that's how I came over to say, let's go to the U.S. And then I came over to Everett and talked to John and to Chris, and they started here. I still have my stuff in Brazil, so I... First year was here. Was basically I went to Brazil ten times in one year. So I was going to ask you: Do you spend like twelve months of the year here now? No, I've, I'm, now I'm full time here. Yeah, now I'm full time. But in the beginning, it was like you know, I had my own academy back home. I had you know, running events, uh, commentating on TV. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, you, you don't, don't, you're not doing that now, though. No, I'm ju- I'm just involved on the reopen the ATP 500. That's the only event. What do you do for that outfit, that tournament? I am one of the tournament directors. So I'm the director of relations for the tournament. So I do a lot of the stuff with, with related to the players, related to sponsors, related to... Uh, basically, I do a little bit of everything. You know. How many years have you been with that event? Nine years. Ever since it started. So I was, I was part of the, the... Since I had all the board experience and all the... The ATP relationship. I was part of the process of helping the company to buy the sanction to bring it over and the people to organize it. So I was running an event, a challenging event, at the same place that we run now the ATP 500. We're talking about American Junior Tennis and, and Everett's and so many positives with that. Obviously, so many questions that could be asked. But what about TV? What about being a commentator? What are your thoughts on that? Loved it. Yeah, I. And this is something that I understood once I stopped playing and, and I realized, Jesus, how dumb was I when I was at playing, you know? Because in a good sense, it, it, you start seeing so many things when you're out of the court and you're not playing that it's, it's amazing. Well, you, you have know? such a long journey, lifetime in tennis. Yeah. And, and you know, with that, uh, so I was thinking the other day, I could easily jump on tour again because I've seen so many matches. Yeah, all the Masters 1,000 events. I would do four matches a day up until the finals. Uh, all the slams. What? I watched, so, I watched more matches than any guy on tour because, because I was commentating. So, you know, I, I see the patterns. A lot of times I see, oh, Jesus, that's, you know, this guy's going to serve here. This guy's going to do that. This guy. And, I would, I, and the, the funny thing, Steve, is that if I was on tour now, I would love it because now these guys have all these stats and all these background things that I've seen that I would love to, to be a part of. Did um, you work with Fernando as, as a commentator at the same time? No. No, he's working at a different channel. Yeah. You got that would be a good team, right? It would have been lovely for us to be like together. Yeah. I've actually done a few things with him on live shows. We've gone together. He has actually invited me into ESPN to to be part of like a a show with during the tournaments, but not commentating matches. 
So, but yeah, commentating matches is great because, uh, especially when you know a few things. And obviously now I don't know that much because I've been away, but a few years back there were a lot of guys that are still new a little bit, and a little bit about the coaches. I still have a lot of relationship with coaches, so a lot of times I call the guys and I say, hey, what's going on with this that guy? And so guys would give me, oh, this guy's doing this, this guy's doing that. And Without mentioning any names, uh, if you were to be a critic for TV commentators, what comes to your mind? I, I've always teased and said I'm going to put an ad in Tennis Magazine. And years ago, Tennis Magazine was expensive. It was like uh-huh. as thick as a small phone book. Mm-hmm. The thousands and thousands of dollars for an ad and say, okay, I have a, I have a, a clinic for um, television commentators. If you were a critic, without mentioning names, again, who, who, what would come to your mind? What, how, what, how could tennis on TV be better? Yeah, what, 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 do you, what do you think of some of the... I mean, you take the high road, there's positives. I mean, I love to listen to really anybody talk about tennis. I mean, I'm not going to turn the volume down. But at the same time, I find myself to the... Christine and I, I come from the position of being more of a technician. And, you know, sometimes... Yeah, I think more and more of the players I've heard Courier say many times a year as of late, and, and Lendl's always been, you know, he hasn't done TV so much, but he's, he's the first one to say, no, that's not my area. I don't do forehands and backhands. Mm-hmm. Where a lot of people just think that they do, but Courier is, well, that's not my area of expertise. But what comes to your mind to, to help a commentator, if you were a commentator's coach? First of all, if, if you're going to say the obvious that everybody can see, why say it? That's one thing that I, my criticism when, when I see someone commentating, oh, yeah, the guy hit a great forehand cross court. Jeez, I saw that. You know? Yeah, one of our commentators in the U.S., uh, and I mean, you spent so much time in the U.S., uh, Howard Cosell, who used to do so many things with Muhammad Ali, he used to say, he's a prophet of the obvious. <laughs> you know, tell me something I don't know. Yeah, I think that if you're commentating something, you're going to give some insights to someone that they can see it. So if I'm going to be there to say, oh, nice cross-court forehand, nice, oh, he aced him wide. Why did he aim him wide? You know, I mean, mean, give him more insight. Give him him something that this guy is going to say, Jesus, I didn't see that. Jesus, why? Because, oh, he got tight. This is what's going to happen. Hey, he hit this double fault because... Four points earlier, the other guy ran around his forehand and hit a winner. And he, something, you know, I, I see sometimes the, the obvious. Sometimes when you comment, I see some guys commentating the obvious. And then that doesn't add to anything. So if you don't bring anything extra, then you why, the, why are you there? Just to call out the score? Yeah, that's so. a great comment. Back to junior tennis, you and I sat courtside. Um, seems like there's a lot more cheating now. Oh, my gosh. Jesus, I, this is, uh, I've seen some absurd stuff and, and um, it's really uh, disgusting. You know, you growing up, I just think of all those practice sets you played. When I had a chance to observe you playing for two years, you could try different things. You know, it's not like, it's like now every, every match is going to be put on a computer screen. A kid's 12 years old and it's going to go on his record and somebody can, with their fingertips, just look up and say, how do, how do they do in that tournament? And every, everybody's, you know, I just think that's too much too soon for, and I think there's so much anxiety. For sure. Kids nowadays, they walk on court with a lot of stuff on their mind. It doesn't help. But the cheating for me is... Absurd. I think something that needs to be done. I mean, it gets to a point that uh, 
I, I don't know. I mean, I feel shame when I see some of the, the things that are happening. It's, it, it's not what the sport is about. It's not about what the competition is about. Uh, um, it's not what life is about. You know, yeah. it's just uh, some of the things that I see is it, 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 they have the and, and, and the thing is nobody's doing anything about it. Nobody's doing anything about it. To the contrary, I think that a lot of times I see I've seen referees and umpires running away from from the situations not to confront it. Yeah, no, even when they were asked to come out, many times they're 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 gonna go with a call, even as bad as it was, they're gonna go with a call so there's not a confrontation. Not just that. Sometimes they're there and they they don't want to participate. They're not they're there, but they're not there. It's just they're hoping that the kids, by them being there, don't do it. So it's for me, it's like Oh, then sometimes the way they talk to officials. Very, very rude, very obnoxious. Yeah, well, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see a, you know, I, I, I was not a saint on court, you know. I was feisty on court. You know? Yeah. And, but I remember talking to, uh, my relationship with the umpires on tour were very good. And I remember talking to a couple guys that were like uh, traveling umpires on the ATP and they said, yeah, you were really tough to when you were on court. They said, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, I knew how to approach you. I knew how to talk to you. And I knew, you know, how to complain. And I knew my boundaries. So, and, but, you know, it, 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 I was not unfair. I, w- I was not trying to cheat. I was just holding my own, you know, so... Do you remember Steve Ulrich? Steve, Steve Ulrich. He might have, he he was he called. Oh, cl- of course, American Steve Ulrich. Sure, yes. Yeah, I thought, yeah. I thought you sure, guys sure, for sure, hundred percent, sure. He went to Tyler Junior College Tennis Tech. I can't believe it. Yeah, I didn't know that. Sure, he umpired my matches for sure. Yeah, he he did. He went. He was big time. And uh, yes, with uh, of course he would. The way it still works that way, I'm pretty sure you'd have to tell me that if if two Americans were playing each other in the final, or just one American, he is an American, uh, he would not be calling that match. A lot of times they had some of some some of these rules in place. I don't know if they're still do, doing that. I have to tell you the truth now because they have now they have the the guys. They're uh, they've had this for a while, but the traveling umpires who are, who are who are the certified guys, and you know they're like the the pros. With the umpires, I, yeah. I I used to call him seven because he, I think he had seven different degrees, yeah. and it, um, and he he was from Indiana and he came down to do the two year program and and um, yeah, so he he was you know for us it was like okay Steve Ulrich he's made it to Wimbledon you know he's he's from our little two year yeah. two year yeah. program and, was... but we had the we had the umpire school every year really it was. Did it for a weekend. It was not the most exciting thing. You read the rule book <laughs> page by page, and um, you know we've had some good umpires in Brazil. Carlos Bernardes is still on. You know, Carlos is. Uh, I just saw him doing a match, the Rune match that you know Rune had, and that he was like discussing with him the the channel. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this guy, I've known him since he was like young, young because he started as a linesman in the Challengers of Futures in Brazil, 
And now he's one of the traveling empires on the tour. But uh, oh, people know. I mean, Steve Aoki took the role of the starving artist. I mean, how do you make it to the big time? He really paid his dues. I bet. No, they all paid his dues. These in, guys in every walk of life, basically. No, but these guys, they they have to come from. It's it's not given. They have to do from way below and come up. It's not easy to get there, and it's uh, it's very few positions. Also, one 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 person told me about Steve Ulrich is that. Reason he became so good is the first year he only said one word. Second year he said two words. He never got more than three words. He's so quiet. Yes, he was really yeah on his own. I you know, remember. yeah, he didn't I get remember. rattled. I mean, people be yelling and screaming at him. And I remember him. Yeah, sure, for sure. He was a cool guy. Yeah, you know, a good empire is exactly like that. It's basically you. You don't remember him. You know, as probably Frank Hammond. Mike Blanchard a little before your time or no? Uh, I, I remember the scene at U.S. Open, yeah. I, I wasn't playing, no. I was doing a, I was helping with a fundraiser, a chair, uh, a corporate outing. It was a fundraiser, a corporate outing and fundraiser. Uh, one of our students, uh, Guy Weinold. So I end up there and I take like six teaching pros with me. And Stan Smith is one of the name players. And the person in the chair and the main event was in uh, Tulsa. It was... Ponca City, Oklahoma. Then we end up in Tulsa, <laughs> and there's like five thousand people, and the chairperson doesn't show up. And Stan Smith says, "I was asked to do it," and I said, "Yeah, I've I've been in the chair before, not with five thousand people." Yeah. And, and he said, uh, "You'll make it or break it." The umpire he goes without a score, and uh, I said, "You want Frank Hammond or Mike Blanchard?" And I, I was up there going, you know, advantage. Smith, he's playing Tim Gullickson. I remember he told me, you should tone it down a little bit because I was just doing commentary. You know, if you watch so many matches, you can, you can, you know, copy the person's voice almost with, uh, but yeah, at the grassroots level, uh, we have some laughs with stories, but it's, it's not funny with all the cheating. What can be done? You know what, what I was thinking the other day, I was in an ITF event. What well, is happening now in Florida now, these three tournaments that are happening, my son is playing. And I went to a tournament in Puerto Rico a few weeks ago, about a month ago. And I was thinking, why don't these referees, they kind of, uh, well, let me go back. When we had, when we were on, on the satellite tour, there was a mandatory meeting for all players on Sunday, every 6 o'clock. So you're playing a satellite before every tournament on 6 o'clock. Everybody had to be there. And then, you know, Gail Bradshaw, who was, you know, Gail Bradshaw, the ATP supervisor. I don't know if you yeah. know Gail, but... No, I remember the name, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So yeah. he was in the USDA. He oh, was, yeah, I mean, tall, playing, lean guy, yeah. Exactly. So he's officiating. To, he was the major guy of the ATP officiating. So he, Gail was, like, doing the USDA tournaments. The, the 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 satellites. Gail would stand up and he'd say, you know, the rules and whatever and this and that, you know. And there was also a dinner. Also, normally there was a dinner for the players and then there was this meeting. And on this meeting they would say some things. So why don't they have that and tell the kids, hey, institute something like, you know, we're going to be cracking down on cheating. And if you're overruled by an umpire on the first, you're overruled for the whole week. You're not overruled for the match. So the next one, you lose a point. On your second round, if you're overruled by the umpire, you, you know, it's not the, the point. You lose a point. Something like that to stop this. This is bullshit. Some kids are known. The other day I saw, my, my son showed it to me. There was a tournament online of the biggest cheaters. 
They did. Some kid put like an Instagram and they were like voting whoever wins the round. And they went round by round to see whoever won. Can you believe that? Is that too much? Yeah. Well, they probably did this when you were a kid. I've seen this done in many countries where you have an arbitrator. So one kid, you know, I think of being in Sweden where they're the big umbrella and the umpire's chair. And so the kid's not standing at the net post in the hot sun. But they, they sit down and they, they have to learn to project you know, announce the score, um, keep the audience in tune. And, you know, it's much better if somebody's announcing score out loud. You're sitting there, the match is more enjoyable. And the kid has to sit in the chair. And then if there's, if there's a question, they overrule. And I think that would be much better. And they do do that in other countries, cut down the expense. And I think that's another thing too, is that the entry fees are, people are paying more, the parents are paying more money and the kids are playing less tennis. I mean, there's no third set. They're playing no ad. Back, the back draws to four. Yes. But to have the young kid, um, you know, if, if, um, if, yeah, you, have to, you have to do one match a day. You know, you have to sit in the chair one match a day and announce the score. And, but if there was, you know, you can't have a cousin in the chair. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, that, would be, that would be good. What, what about uh, Everett's? Talk to us a little about Chris Everett. You're talking about Guga being humble. My favorite, or one of my favorite Everett stories, she was born in the same year I was. And so, I mean, I've grown up watching and reading about Chris Everett. And she wins the Canadian Open, and she's looking at the list of champions, and she reads that her father had won the tournament. And she never knew that her father had won the tournament. Wow. Talk about humble. Yes. I had the chance one time to spend three days... Uh, on his court, just watching him teach tennis at the old, now the place is rightfully named after him, the Holiday Park. But there's a tennis mind. What comes to your mind uh, knowing Chris Everett? I see her sometimes at the Battle of Boca, and she's just over by herself, and no one, you know, right. you know the, sea, the sea of Nick of, uh, Rick Macy signs, and there's Chris, <laughs> right. Chris Everett with all her majors, and yeah. just unbelievable record in tennis, and very unassuming as she's over there and people don't even know that's her, her sitting there with her right. baseball cap. Well, she, like you said, humble. I think that's a good way to, 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 to uh, project her, you know, in terms of she doesn't, I don't see her as a person like that she wants to be on the limelight of anything, but she, she, you feel her presence as at the point that she comes in, you know, uh, I see her involvement with the girls. Like she, she, whenever she's in town, she's always at the academy. She arrives early, goes to the courts, especially with the girls. And she's over there talking. She's over there communicating, participating. Um, sometimes she's there hitting. She hits. Um, Even recently with... Yeah, well, recently she hasn't been doing much. But, you know, before the, the treatment that she's done, she, yes, she, uh, she used to hit quite a bit. And sometimes getting frustrated, <laughs> you know, because obviously she wants, you know, the kids to, to, to reach the better level and get involved. Um, she cares a lot. You know, I see her getting to the girls, getting on a personal basis with a lot of the girls. Um, and you can see her tennis IQ is huge. It's perception is, it's, she has a sharp mind in terms of that. So... You know, uh-huh. her ball striking is it's just amazing when you hear people say the modern game. is. I, I always say, you know, put put your racket in the bag. Actually, I heard Warren Victorious, I'm stealing his line, is 
um, I mean, the modern game, when you hear that, take your rackets, put them in your shoulder bag and run away as fast as possible. <laughs> because, I mean, the game has evolved, right. but, you know, I mean, if people just, like, I mean, the way she hit a backhand, you know, it's just like on the men's side with it, you know, you go to Connors, to Agassi, to Djokovic, I mean, the similarities far outweigh the differences. Right, right. But I think consistency. Yes. The 125 matches in a row on clay. Yeah, that, you know, and, and a lot of times, a few times I was... She even forgets those stats. Like you know, when we got to uh, to the um, to the pandemic, she started doing. I said, "Hey, Chrissy, you know, let me organize." She was doing some. Uh, she talked to Martina. She talked to Vavrinka. She talked to a few people, like having those lives. And then I started bringing out these stats, like how many times she's been in the quarterfinals, how many yeah. times she's been in the semis. And, and she, goes, she goes, "Wow, you know, wow. it's just incredible." <laughs> yeah. And I was going like, Jesus, this is amazing. I mean, you lost me. You lost two matches in seven years. And you go, really? I mean, I mean something. I mean, I'm, I don't know that. I just made up that one. But I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable. Those that one twenty-five. It's like, Jesus, how many years is that? The span of how many years she was not losing a match? I mean, she played fifty-four Grand Slams, right? No, or fifty-six. She. She only missed four of them in the semis. So 52, she got to the semis. <laughs> Who can say that? I can remember. I, I, I came to Florida in the 74 when I was 19, so she would have been 19 too. And with, um, yeah, I mean, obviously someone like Everett, I'm going to guess uh, December birthday, December 54. I've got, we have a fact checker, but she's definitely born in 54. But in the Sun Sentinel, one of the, the Fort Lauderdale news, uh, her oldest brother, Drew, was, I think, playing at Auburn. And, you know, your your sister is Chris Everett. You know, I was like, well, no, I, I can beat Chrissy. And they asked Chrissy, she said, definitely on hard court. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, those, those are the things. I, I just love the, the character side of tennis, uh -huh. you know, yes. definitely on hard court. With um, which is amazing. Let me uh, go with nonsense. Um, do you know why your polo shirt so expensive? No, but I always try to uh, buy them when they're on sale. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, the man on the horse is wearing an Izod shirt. That's a boom. Uh. <laughs> I mean, you laugh. My, my my students don't laugh at my jokes. But you've done so many things in your career. I think you know. Um, writer we should we should go back to the sitcom of all your different chapters in your life to so go back to uh i wrote this down bob wiley would be the character he would be the <laughs> so yeah you, you haven't written a sitcom right so a 30 minute tv show we should do that and uh do you remember these names tom gatone rennie troxler mike rogers mike rogers yes those were the uh, those three are from Connecticut. They were the original three. Then kind of like the Beatles and Bob Wiley joined in, and then you know then Mike. I remember the other two. I'm not remembering, but Mike, yes. If you saw the thing, if you saw their uh, a picture of them, you could. They were they were they were obviously they were the guys from Connecticut. They were good tennis players, but it was a whole different level. Of, um, the level the level of tennis that was played in junior college tennis. It was amazing. But uh, no, it's been great to have you on. Um, so many takeaways. Um, but, so we'll have to get together and uh, 
write that sitcom. All right. Bob, Bob Wiley. Oh, the, uh, it's, you know, some of the stories that we could, uh, you know, now there's the censorship. Uh, I mean, we could go with the real Bob Wiley with what's on TV today. That's true. Versus that is true. <laughs> Bob, it was a character. Bob, he, uh, I think he lived in Plano, Plano, Texas, which is right. No, yeah, he's from Dallas. Dallas I, know. I think yeah, he's out in California now, yeah. right? Is he in California? Yeah. And he used to play the, the racket guitar. You know, yeah, because you know, he always we, had that music blaring. Exactly, we used to just listen to Def Leppard and all these rock bands, and he was like, you know, make, make, mimicking the the guitar on the on the on the racket. And then uh, we went to a uh, Ozzy Osbourne <laughs> concert in Dallas. Oh, I got out of there with a, my my ears were like we sat right by the. Was so loud. I mean, Bob was Bob was a character. Jeez. Well, I think that's one thing too. Is it you had fun away from the game? Yeah, and uh, maybe sometimes a little too much fun. But <laughs> when it comes to Wiley, but that, 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 yeah. with uh, yeah, we'll have to go off air and start telling Bob Wiley stories. <laughs> but uh, and others, you know, for me, I don't know why. Maybe it's my mother who's a nostalgic storyteller. Or being the youngest of, of, of eight, you know, a family of six, and uh, you don't have a speaking part. I just got to listen. So then years later, I get to tell some stories. But mm-hmm. uh, that period of time, you know, 42 years ago, you and I, you were there um, a little before because I came in in October. I remember it came October 1st, and I had the challenge of, okay, I'm going to re- try to reinvent, revise this program. And, uh, but the cast of characters, it was a very small group. It was, you know, yeah. there, there was, the, the women, uh, they played very high level too. Yes, yes. I keep in touch with uh, Tina Sawyer. I don't know if you remember Tina. Oh, I do, or Serve. I remember Serve. I got in trouble with her, Serve. Uh, very nice lady. Very yeah. classy lady. She's involved with the LTA. She's... Uh, Pernilla Halberg was Pernilla. Her. Pernilla was my girlfriend for a while. The so, sweet. The tough, yeah, the she, sweet, she, yes. She was tough mentally. Yes, uh, yeah, Tina, though, you know, that goes way back where I remember the coach finally asking me to help her with her serve. And it was like right before they're going to nationals. And and I re- remember, and I could be wrong with this, that her mom had helped her. So we get to be a little bit sensitive. And uh, but, you know, there's a gal who she just she had some hiccups with the serve. I remember Tina. Uh, uh, what, was, she, what she, she does something at Wimbledon now. She's involved with the LTA. She's always yeah. every time I, I go to London, I, I cross with her. You know, I, I kind of yeah. When I when I finished at South Carolina and I graduated, what you know what I did? I went to London and I stayed at her house for like three days, and then it was my point of entry in Europe. And then uh, she said, "Well, you have to go to the French Federation, get your your ranking, and then you can start playing the money tournaments in France." And then I got, you know, I stayed there in the, her house with her mother and oh, everybody wow. for a couple of days. We even went to the pub, and it was like, I, I I don't forget it because I asked for a beer, and it was like so hot, and I'm going, Jesus, man, give me a cold beer. It's like this is cold. I'm going, oh boy, <laughs> that's funny. It's like back in the day in yeah, London, if you yeah, asked, yeah. if you had if you asked for iced tea, they would bring you a spoon with one ice cube on it. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's you drive me mad. I'm going, Jesus, can you put some ice in this thing? There's plenty of ice in there. I'm going, <laughs> no, I, they didn't even remember. They didn't, oh. know, they didn't know what iced tea was. No. But yeah. Hall, Hallberg uh, from Sweden, there was another girl, and that's how it worked. Is it, was, I, it was I a, saw Pernilla when I went to play in Stockholm. Okay. Yeah, when I, when I went to play in Stockholm, I saw her, yeah. But, you know, there was 
one player from Sweden, and there's like they would go, they would recommend a friend. Yeah. Recommend, right. This is a great story to end on. It was there's a young girl from Sweden playing, and I was um, not coaching the girl, but I, ra I ran the tournament, and it happened during the tournament. So, you know, she has problems with her feet, and they take a timeout, and her, you know, one foot's, you know, really bloody, and they start to clean it. She said, no, 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 don't wipe off the blood. <laughs> it, will, it will help me fight in a third set. Oh, wow. You know, those, those are the stories. That like, <laughs> like, okay, that was that was worth hanging around for today. You know, we worked, worked a long day, but that was just one pearl to take away. But give me the high five. That was fantastic. Yeah. I was a guest. I, yeah, I enjoyed really, really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> and I know our listeners will. But right. uh, how do you say it in uh, Brazil? Ciao. 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 All right. Wave the camera, Ricardo. We're going to be looking up Bob Wiley. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That was great. All right.